You did a Reddit AMA, I think, and you said that art saved your life. Yes. Oh my God. You, you actually, wow. I love you. You've done homework. Yes, oh, I did a Reddit AMA. Uh, it was something that was recommended that I do. And, and, and I personally myself, as an artist and as an entrepreneur, which I'll talk about that in a minute because I think it's important, I, I, I think it's important to constantly push my boundaries and my comfort zone and my parameters, expand my horizons to see what's out there. So I did this AMA on Reddit and I did say that art did save my life because it did. Um, that's a long story. That's a longer answer, but I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. Can you do a Reader's Digest version? Or? The Reader's Digest version. Boy, we're going to dive right <laughs> that's, in. That's okay. Really, I'm not giving away my age there. So. <laughs> <laughs> the Reader's Digest version. Okay. So the Reader's Digest version, I zigged when I should have zagged and I got caught up in this um, kind of new age doomsday, doomsday cult and took about 20 years out of my life. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, so by all means, I shouldn't, well, well, by many parameters, definitions, et cetera, I shouldn't be able to be like doing as well as I can, but that's, you know, I've been working at things. Mm -hmm. So, um, why did we get on that question? Oh, the AMA art saved my life. So, uh, in that process of, of getting myself out of that, uh, cult and, and the brainwashing, the mind control, whatever you want to call it, that goes with it, um, I always wanted to be a performer. I always loved the arts, singing, dancing, acting, writing, um, uh, playing music, all of it. You know, I loved it, but I just didn't get the support that I needed uh, to keep pursuing that. And then, you know, there are other things that happen in life along the way. And so I, I like, I just went full bore into acting. And, uh, you know, you work, you work it out in an acting class. You know, it's a safe space. Um, hopefully, sometimes it's not. Uh, and you've got to look out for that. Uh, but, you know, it, 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 it encourages and enables uh, the person, the individual, to be able to explore, you know, some dark territories, some dark emotions, some taboo emotions, um, some dangerous places emotionally, some, some weird places, whatever it may be. And, uh, you know, subsequently that helped me in ways that I didn't even really understand. I didn't go there and go, well, it's going to be therapy for me or whatever, but it certainly, it certainly was the case for me. And, um, uh, yeah, man, it did. It saved my life. It really did. Yeah. So w without going too much into the cold, yes. uh, w were you, did you have another career that you were doing before? Uh, I did. Um, I was, yeah, I guess for, uh, I kind of always had an entrepreneurial spirit ever since I was a little boy. Um, like I, I, I asked my dad if I could use the lawnmower when I was, I don't know, I was like seven or eight years old. And he looked at me, he's like, why? He says, well, I, I want to go mow some lawns. And he just kind of smiled and he goes, okay. And so I just went down the street and started knocking on my neighbor's doors. Hey, you know, I'll mow your lawn for you. Didn't have a price or anything in mind. I just figured, I was just like the kindness of people. And I'd go out there and mow the lawn and rake it up and put it in plastic bags. And like I was seven or eight years old. I thought that's, you know, I saw that's how my father did it and that's how you're supposed to do it. That's how it was done. And invariably everybody would be staring out their windows just watching this young kid like working. And they would come, you're so diligent. I didn't know what that meant. You know, you're, you're so thorough. This is great. And they would give me five and $10, which 
you know, back in those days was a lot of money. And uh, it became quickly apparent to me that, you know, this was something I liked to do. I enjoyed the whole, every aspect of it. The, the hustle, the, the drive to go out and knock, you have to create something, uh, and then follow through and, and provide the service and, and do a good job and make the customer happy. And hopefully they'll tell somebody else and you can come back again. This was way more fun than going and saying, you know, hey, can I scoop ice cream? Or, and there's not that there's anything wrong with that, but for me, the way I was wired, that, uh, that's always been what I did. So yeah, I had, I've owned and operated several businesses, most of them not successfully, but that's where you learn, you know, you fall down flat on your face and uh, lose money, uh, just screw the pooch in any number of ways. And, you know, you, you know that didn't work, I won't do that again. And then you start to learn, oh, well that worked, I'll do more of that, I'll just keep doing that. And uh, yeah, I've, I've, that's, that's been what I've done. So um, at that time I'd had a, um, uh, we started a, ironically in that cult, we started a, um, a painting business and, and we were kind of struggling and then threw out the idea that, you know, maybe we should go after the affluent market where people who have a lot of money and they don't necessarily worry about price so much as they do the quality of the work and, and you not being a pain in their backside. And so we started to uh, go after uh, the big name designers. This was in New York City at the time uh, in the 80s. And... Um, yeah, we got a couple of designers, gave us a break, and uh, uh, we got a chance to do like one bedroom for, I'm not gonna start naming names, but for some very affluent clients. Um, and they liked it, and word started to spread, and within a year, we had more work than we could handle. And we had, we were booked out, you know, months in advance, and you know, when you, our whole thing was doing a great job, hmm. like doing a job that they didn't expect going above and beyond. And like I said, you know, I learned this from when I was like eight years old. So, you know, I showed up at this one very wealthy woman, uh, woman's apartment. She owned like the entire, I don't know, it was like the, the 10th floor of a very well-known building in, in the Upper West Side. And, uh, I walked in, and uh, this was the gig, man. This was the I knew I knew what to do. I just I knew from all these trial and error uh, that she wanted her place to look pristine. And you walked in, and it was gorgeous. It was absolutely beautiful. Not my style, but tasteful, elegant, beautiful. And we're gonna repaint the place. So I walked in with a disposable camera, took pictures chick, 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 all around the room, and uh, I the entire apartment. And uh, I asked the uh, the maid, or the housekeeper, excuse me, asked the housekeeper if I could uh, uh, be excused. I needed to go develop the film. And she looked at me like, I, what? And uh, she said, well, let me go ask Mrs. And I said, okay. And so I did, and they gave me the blessing. And I went down to the hour film developing. I came back, and I put everything, in, all the pictures inside of a, uh, a photo album. And they're watching me out of the corner of my eye. And I was like, I got them. <laughs> and, and it was method to my madness, but it was also, you know, I wanted to let them know just they could just start to relax and that tension in their shoulders could start to dissipate. And then uh, I got the uh, other guys that were with me and we started to just mask off the floor with, uh, first we put down sisal paper, they call it the brown kind of absorbent paper, and we taped off every square inch of the floor, right? 
and then we put plastic over that. We put another layer of drop cloths over that. Like the floor wasn't going to get damaged. And they're just looking at me out of the corner like, who the hell it was? Very good, very good. <laughs> so um, anyway, <laughs> I don't know why we're talking about that. But yeah, that's, that was the level of work that we did. And um, we did well. We did well with it. But at some point you decided that... <clears throat> Sorry. There was a lot of insanity going on, as I said, because that was the business and that was the face of, you know, that, that was our business. But then like the insanity of that group was always an undercurrent all the time. Uh, and like, that's a whole other story. I mean, we could talk about that for hours, but um, yes. Uh, but at some point you said, you know what, I want to try this acting thing. I, well, I always did. And I kind of dabbled in it from a, from a distance. And, but I was really, you know, honestly, I was just petrified to do it. I was afraid to put myself, you know, on camera. You know, you, first time you see yourself on camera, I think this goes for pretty much everyone. Um, you know, just, oh my God, oh my God. You just start beating yourself up, which doesn't do anybody any good, right? Um, but it's shocking the first time you hear your voice and you see yourself on camera and how you do things and how you say things and etc. Um, so I, I, I really went all in and I got really lucky right away and got my Screen Actors Guild card um, with pretty much my first audition. Wow. I know. Yeah. I know. <laughs> that rarely if ever happens. Um, it was on a show that used to be shot down in San Diego uh, with Stu Siegel Productions. Um, Stu was a great guy. Had uh, studios set up down there, and he did a show called Silk Stockings. Yes. Eighteen Wheels of Justice. What was the other one? Wings of Gold. Something I can't remember. I can't remember the other one. But yeah, he shot those shows down there, and I got my first uh, my first gig working with Rob Estes and uh, Mindy. I forgot Mindy's last name. Sorry, Mindy. Um, really great actors, great people on Silk Stockings. Yeah. So then, how was it for? You know, because you're you're living off that high and maybe the paycheck of the job, but then <laughs> the the weird part is then whoo, then it comes down, and oh, now yeah. you're drumming up work, oh, and yeah. now that clock is ticking for the first of the month. You know what's interesting about that? You're right. You're right. That occurred, and I had a bunch of crazy notions in my head about you know what acting was and what you know. Uh, the what 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 would happen you know like it, all these crazy ideas of celebrity and money and stardom and stuff that wasn't what I was aiming for um, but the funny thing was you just hit the nail on the head you know if you're gonna succeed in this business whatever if you're gonna be writing directing producing acting singing dancing whatever it is whatever aspect it's contingent upon your ability to get, keep picking up the phone keep sending the emails, following up, going to uh, uh, networking events or, or going to meetings or whatever. You get out there and start to circulate and nurture relationships. And I did that in business. But for whatever reason, when I got into acting, I was just like, hi, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I'm not sure why I did that. The only thing I can think the reason that I may have done that was because it was so therapeutic in so many ways. Uh, there was less judgment in the beginning stages, at least through these eyes there were, 
um, you know, when you're in an acting class. Like, it was a very forgiving space, largely. And that was like, holy sh this is, you know, my heart just like started to open up. This is fantastic. And uh, you could get weird, like I said, you could get funny, you could get serious, you could get loud, you could get ugly, whatever, right? Tender, powerful, whatever it may be. And, um, and I think I, well, I needed that. Clearly, I needed that. And I turned off the business part of my brain. And I wish I hadn't, but, you know, everyone's path is different. Um, that's not the case these days. Uh, but it certainly was in the beginning. You, you said something interesting. You said that in the beginning it was a safe space and that people were encouraging or you just felt like accepted. Do you think as you rise in the ranks, that changes? Um, yeah, it can, of course. I mean, that's very kind of naive on my part. And it's also accurate. Um, you know, you can't create a, a performance in a, in a place where you don't feel safe. And this isn't anything that no one's heard a million times. You've got to, be, you've got to feel comfortable and safe with your director, with the crew members, with producers, with you know, a screenwriter, with the, whoever it is. You've got to feel that you know, we're all in this together and we're trying to create something. Um, and, but you know, as necessarily as you, as you start working on bigger and bigger projects, um, you know, you're, you're stepping into a business. And if they're successful ones, if they've been around a long time, they're a well-oiled machine. And you're just there to move a storyline along, or you're there to play, uh, you know, whatever X factor is in that story, in that script, in the parameters of that show, and those characters in that world. And, you know, if you forget that, not, not a resourceful move. <laughs> so, but, but, uh, but I, I think that, yeah, it still can be a safe space. But of course, then, you know, it's, it's, it's commerce. You're in business. So you have to, you have to factor that in. I, I believe that that doesn't happen often enough with um, a lot of actors. Well, you know, to be fair, actors take a beating all the time. Because they think, like, you know, we call it talking and moving background. Some guy said one time. I looked and I was like, really? Wow, that's amazing that you feel comfortable enough to say that to me. Um, <laughs> what was your name again? I didn't catch it, right? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, too often actors, uh, I I've, have seen too often that they will not embrace business aspect. But as I said, to be fair, I see writers doing the same thing. I see directors doing the same thing. I see some producers doing the same thing, which seems counterintuitive, but they... It happens. I've seen it happen. They don't take the business aspect into play enough. It is called show business, and really, it should probably call it the business of show, because if you want to create or perform whatever your art is, whatever your 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 instrument, your vehicle is for for expressing your your artistry, you can do it on any street corner, right? But if we're here in Hollywood, um, then necessarily you are looking to make a mark, make a statement, and be paid for it, and that's great. But you, if you're gonna do that, then you need to understand how businesses work. After you got going a little while, was it more important for you to find a manager or an agent or work on your craft? Yes. <laughs> okay, all three, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
interesting. That's a that's a good question. Uh, I did all three. Um, as a bit, you know, I, I was like slow to bring my business acumen into, you know, the my acting business. That sounds crazy to say, but anyway, um, I didn't see any sense in getting a manager and an agent when there wasn't anything needing a manager yet. There was no career. There is no career, right? I, mean, I guess you could probably still say that now in a manner of speaking. I'm kidding. Um, not really, but I am. <laughs> you know, why give away another 10% of your income? For what? Right? And if it's a manager, the manager's dynamic should be one of supporting and nurturing your you and your career and what is possible and what is available and what could be created, right? So I didn't spend a lot of time with that. Agents, yeah, you know, we all chase agents all the time, but uh, the guy, you know, me right now, I would say don't worry about the agent, especially in today's market. You don't necessarily need an agent. Get your hustle on. Submit for anything and everything you can. Show up, keep auditioning, keep getting better, work on your craft, absolutely. Um, but, uh, you know, you want to get so good at it. You want the muscle memory, the emotional muscle memory, the, the, uh, the auditioning muscle memory, the, uh, you know, get ready to cry at the drop of a dime or whatever may be happening. You got to get those things so they're prepared and ready to go. Um, and then, you know, the darndest thing happens is the agents start calling you because your work starts to show up and a reputation starts to get built and uh, a word starts to go around, you know, conversations start to happen. And then what you've done is you flip the script. And it's really the smart thing to do, quite frankly. Just real quick, following up something you said, you just joked about there not being a career. Do you feel like that every time one job ends? Because you are essentially, <laughs> it's like a snow globe, you're oh shaking it up, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Oh my God, yeah. I, I, uh, I don't remember when it happened, but uh, I was talking with someone uh, who had the kind of the typical, oh, you're working in TV and film, oh my God. And I'm thinking, you know, man, I'm on set. The lights are on, the camera's going, the mic's hot, the crew is standing around, they're setting up the shot, changing, you know, a lens, relighting something, whatever it is, there's a little bit of a break. I've got my cell phone out and I'm answering emails. I'm sending off texts looking for work, returning phone calls if I've got a second without interrupting everybody else and then put it away and go right back into it. You know, hustling right on the set, in the trailer, in the makeup chair, right? It never ends. So yeah, I always feel like that. I think every actor can, I've, I've never heard an actor not say that. Unless, I mean, you're lucky enough you get, you know, your own show or you have a proper, you know, movie career where it keeps on coming. But even then, it's, it's an up and down and you just never know, you know. That being said, why do you think people fail at it then? Fail at? Um, having consistent acting work. It's a big question. Um, there are a number of factors at play, but if I kind of pull out and take the meta view of it or like the 30,000 foot view, like if you're in a plane, 35,000 foot, whatever it may be, uh, I think people probably aren't clear on what they want. 
And I also think that most people don't uh, investigate themselves and know themselves well enough and don't manage their emotional states better because you know ultimately everything's a psychological game ultimately right because you know we're all out there and everybody here is talented like everyone's talented ridiculously talented the competition level is high right and it, it was like that I, I i played college sports and it was like and it got to i'll never forget when i got to college you know i played football i was like oh my god these guys are all so good wow right and so then it becomes a mental game right a psychological game managing your emotions staying focused you know making sure that you're not giving some kind of crazy meaning to something that happened that doesn't help you doesn't serve you and push you down the field or down the path towards whatever it is you want being clear your goal and that um, you notice when you start to you know go off course maybe you have crazy emotional reaction to something or or it gives you a bad feeling or whatever right Th those those things are important and I think that's a long-winded answer but that's why more people aren't as successful as they could be and work more often generally speaking that's like that is a big question but generally speaking I would say we start there yeah. yeah, I just looked at a book just recently and it was called, um, I won't say who the person was because I don't want to sort of break their anonymity even though there's a book out about them, but they basically said it was the female so-and-so who was basically, they used the male version, trying to say that this person could have become that well. if they could, hadn't manage their emotions, different things. Drinking was another one. Oh, I see. And so they showed this person's rise from sort of obscurity and was like the poor relation and to their subsequent downfall and just how sad it was. But I thought that was interesting because it could be a metaphor for a lot of people. And it's, it is managing because yeah. crazy things can happen in LA. Absolutely. And, and I, I like what you said, sort of like I'm not sure if you said don't not overreacting or or, yeah. or managing that, and that, yeah. that is a real skill. It is a skill, and it, and and you know it's one that you you have to work at to develop because it's not something we're all taught. You know, like that would be a really, really like critical, foundational course that should be in the educational system. If you're asking me, I don't know that you are, but <laughs> <laughs> you know that's a life skill that's invaluable, and uh, uh, you know I. I you know, I've got my, 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 my nerdiness, and one of the things is I always like to study people who have been you know, massively successful or influential uh, in, in across a broad spectrum of, of disciplines and industries. And, and um, there's, uh, what, what, uh, let me ask you, what do you think would be the common, the, the common denominator with the most successful people? I know that's, well, what does successful mean? So let's just say financially, you know, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, physically. The most successful people. What would you think is the most common uh, trait that they have? From what I've seen, uh, I think people that are just obsessed with something. It doesn't even mean that they're good people or, you know, any, anywhere on, on the spectrum of, of sort of intentions. But I think being so obsessed with whatever they are into, whether it's acting, whether it's stock trading, whether it's real estate, whether it's painting, whether it's meditation. I've seen people that just have this laser focus with something right. and they're obsessed with it and right. it's their life. That, it's seven days a week. That is a very common answer and that's certainly, <clears throat> excuse me, that's certainly 
necessary. You know, the, 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 the seminal book that Napoleon Hill wrote, Think and Grow Rich, you have to have that burning desire, right? White hot burning desire, which in today's world is like, I'm obsessed. <laughs> Everybody says obsessed. Um, it's not necessarily the best word to use, but it's the word of the day. Um, so yes, that's it. But, but the, the, the trait that people see, that's, that's kind of a given, is self-compassion. Ah, so sort of um, self-awareness or, or... Self-compassion. Compassion. Uh -huh. can, you, can, you, can you take me through that, what that would be? Sure. Self-empathy. So not beating up on oneself. There you go. Interesting. I Isn't would it? not have guessed that. Yeah, well, neither would I. And but where did you learn that? they all do. Uh, from just reading and studying uh, different people, male, female, different industries, different disciplines, different... Uh, races, origins, you're going to make mistakes. You are going to, right? Um, so since we're talking about acting and you know, this is film courage uh, and writing, there's a lot of writers that, that uh, uh, watch this. And um, I mean, what writer do you know that doesn't beat themselves up? What actor do you know that doesn't beat themselves up, right? Right. Like there's that neurosis that's always like sitting on the shoulder here, you know, that anxiety is over here and just like, oh my God, what are they thinking about me? Like, give yourself a break. Relax. Right? Because reality is most everyone not even thinking about you. That's true. Yeah. They're thinking about themselves. And P.S. They're having the same conversation in your head <laughs> that you are. And they're thinking you're thinking that about them. Yeah. Right? Right. We're all human beings. Right? Give yourself a break. You're doing the best you can do with what you have at that time. And if you are obsessed, as we say, or you have that burning desire, whatever it may be, uh, then just trust that you're going to make mistakes. But that's how you learn. Mistakes are a great thing. I never used to think that way. I, I sound, I wonder how that <laughs> sounds probably crazy to say that, but it's the truth. Mistakes, mistakes are a blessing, man. Number one, it means you're still alive. You got problems, you're still alive. There's an old story some guy was telling. Um, a guy and his son are driving uh, through town and the kid's talking about problems, problems, problems. And, you know, Dad, I just wish I didn't have any problems. And they drive by the graveyard. He goes, you want to know one place where they don't have problems? And he points to the graveyard. Those problems are good. They're a sign of life, son. So, yeah. Yeah, it's the truth, though, right? You're going to make mistakes. That's how you learn, man. That's how you learn. Pain is the greatest teacher there is. And everyone runs from it to their detriment. Myself included, right? I, I find that very interesting. So instead of, let's suppose you bomb an audition or someone tells you you're horrible, God, whatever it is. I've never done that. I've never done that. <laughs> so I don't know that I can relate. <laughs> instead of sort of reenacting uh, like Nicolas Cage's character in uh, Leaving Las Vegas. Yeah. Being more like, you know what, I'm going to go for a hike. I'm going to take care of myself. That's not as, that's not as sexy and glamorous though. You know, I think a lot of us, I know uh, Julia Cameron said, tortured artists get way more attention and pats on the back than people that are in it. You know, so I'm, I wonder if we kind of fall into this wanting to almost be a tortured artist because it gets more attention and people like you more than if everything's yeah, great. People are going to be uh, like, oh, I hate this person. <laughs> yeah, man. It's kind of a, yeah. It happens, it, 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 it can definitely happen, right? But it's kind of a bullshit narrative. It really is. Tell me. And, uh, well, you know, like you just said, it's not as sexy and glamorous. And it's ironic because who, sexy, who sexified and glamorized it? That's true. Our industry did, right? Mm -hmm. And 
so they, you know, the same thing with, with painters, you know, Van Gogh took his ear off. Right. Nobody knew who he was, thought he was a batshit crazy, and now he's worshipped and adored, but he's not around for it anymore. Right? So, uh, yeah, I don't know. You know, I mean, it, it happens. I understand it. I don't want to poo-poo it. It's tough. I've wrestled with it. I still do. Uh, you know, I'm not immune to it by any stretch of the imagination. But, um, yeah, man, you got to give yourself a break. you got to do the best you can. And I, have, I can't even believe I still work. I look back at some of my old work and it's just, I just, you know, you cringe. I cringe, like, oh my God, oh my God, right? The imposter syndrome, they say they're going to figure out. One of these days they're going to figure out you have no idea what you're doing. Everyone feels that way. I've had the good fortune of, of, of uh, knowing, dining with, being friendly with, you know, world leaders and, and, and senators and federal judges and civil rights leaders and and they all have the similar everyone across the board everyone everyone feels like that you know and i think it would be more helpful if we all would hear that more often and realize that more often and it's like okay man yeah i feel like a fraud you know what i you know i i feel yeah they can probably see that my eye is twitching or they can probably they can probably hear my stomach gurgling or i shouldn't have had that garlic last night or whatever it may be <laughs> and you just say F it, I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. What other BS narratives do you think the industry instill? I, I like it. Let's go there. Let's, okay. All right. So, I mean, what, what else do you think this, you know, there's, there's sort of the work hard, put your head down, do better than the next guy. Does that really work anymore? Uh, hard work and discipline, right? We used to hear those all the time. Uh, yeah, you got to work, obviously, right? As you said earlier, you're obsessed, you have the burning hot desire, you're driven to go get it. You know, you're going to work for that. You're never not going to go after that. So that's a given. So then it's less about working hard and keeping your head down and just, you know, grinding it out. Um, it's ironic in this business that's built upon creativity that that's not, well, I don't know what the right word would be, but that that's not more fully fleshed out, right? Um, it's not necessarily about working harder because if you're serious about it and you want to be successful, let's be honest, let's just be honest. Everyone's in this town and in this business because they want to make that movie. They want to make that series. They want to be that artist, that director, that producer, that writer, right? Everyone does and that's great, right? But you got to acknowledge that your way is your way. Right? And it's not about working harder. It's about working smarter. And it's not about finding a tactic or a technique or a hack, the new buzzword. Know. You know, five hacks to make your life go better. Um, it, sounds, it sounds sexy and glamorous, right? I just air quoted. <laughs> uh, but you would be better served to be strategic in your approach. Right? Because the best strategy is going to crush the best hacks, techniques, tips, and tactics every day, all day. There was a guy named Sun Tzu. He wrote a little something about it many centuries ago. Uh-huh. Yeah. And Stephen Pressfield did a, another thing. The Art of Stephen Pressfield. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Blew my mind when I read those books. So simple. To make something that simple and that elegant and that 
that deep. Do you struggle with resistance? Yeah, of course. Yeah, every day. Yeah. When you find yourself in it, how do you get yourself out of it? Awareness. So, I do everything I can to increase my awareness. And the thing that I found that increases awareness more than anything is meditation. Um, having talked about it before I was in that, that cult, and I really did lose a 20-year span of my life in, in a large, in a manner of speaking, and also literally, right? Because psychologically, the, you know, you're not really thinking too clearly. And I looked and, and acted normally. Everyone, you know, people knew that something was up, but I still was functioning, you know. So, you know, meditating is amazing. Meditation is an amazing practice that's been around for millennia, right? And it's just becoming more popular in our culture again now. It hadn't been since the 60s. That's a, another conversation, but that, that time has come again now. I came across when I was trying to, uh, to work my way through this, that, that cult ordeal, um, this thing that was basically high technology meditation. And I was like, what is that? The long and the short of it is, with the press of a button on your phone, your MP3 player, however you choose to listen to it, you can meditate more deeply than a Buddhist monk who has perfected their technique and been doing it over 35 years. And I was like, huh. And this uh, gentleman had created this company and he used this auditory, you know, called it this technology, and it's binaural beats. Anyway, it puts you in deep meditative state immediately. And it's amazing. The biggest benefit of meditation, whether you choose to do it that way or you do it a traditional way, uh, is that it begins to expand one's awareness. And with more awareness, you have more choice. And you naturally notice that that which doesn't serve you will just kind of organically fall away. So when that resistance comes up, I was talking about what I'm focused on, the meaning I give something, and the emotions that come up. I start to feel that resistance. I just kind of stop. And this is... This is a hard-fought battle that I'm just spitting out to you in a, in a couple of minute answer here, was just to realize that I was in a resistant place and where that feeling was in my body and then noticing where my breathing was and then noticing where my focus was and thinking about, well, why was this happening? Why am I feeling that way? Would, oh, that's right. X happened. I gave it Y meaning and now I'm having Z feeling. This is kind of crazy. Huh. No judgment. No criticism, no critiquing at all. Just noticing it with curiosity. And this was something that was recommended to me. And I thought when I first heard it, man, get out of here. <laughs> um, there's resistance. <laughs> and I didn't realize it. And the person that I was telling this to said, oh, really? Well, that's cool. If you know it and, and X, Y, and Z, why is your life still the way it is right now? And why are you suffering? All right, I don't like you anymore. I don't want to talk to you. And I hung up. Uh, but uh, it's the truth. The more awareness I developed and the more I started to pay attention to what I was thinking about, how it was making me feel, the meanings I was assigned to things, right? And the people and places that I was attracted to and that were attracted to me, everything started to shift and change, right? Because as far as I can tell, there's only four things that any of us can control. And the rest, at best, we have influence. So I can choose what I focus on and what I think about. Okay, I can choose 
The meanings that I assign to anything, P.S., side note, nothing in and of itself has any inherent meaning. <laughs> My head was blown the first time I thought about that. So those two things. The third thing is the feelings that I have, the emotions that I'm experiencing, those are all three under my control. And the fourth thing is kind of a slash thing, the people I'm attracted to and the people that are attracted to me. Those are the only things I can control. Anything else, it's out of my control. So if I blow up an audition, oh well, right? What did I learn from it? What could I have done better? Am I being too harsh on myself? How do I even really know what he, she, they were thinking, right? Maybe they had the gas face because they just, you know, gotten some bad news or, you know, chili con carne went sour in their stomach or who knows? It could be anything, right? Instead of like just beating yourself up and flogging yourself, you know? Any quick tip for someone that's come out of a, whether they've been in a cult or whether they've been, they've just gotten newly sober and maybe they were in a... Yeah induced haze for years or they could have been in a bad situation bad work situation mm -hmm. and kind of like coming because it's almost like you're coming into life new again i would imagine almost like an infant probably in some way or i'm i'm, I'm putting words in your mouth no no no, no 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 that's that's interesting you said that because yeah those thoughts came through my head in the beginning as i was you know start kind of wrapping my head around this uh well first of all it, it's not, it's, you know, you gotta, as in this industry, so is it the same in recovering from emotional trauma, emotional abuse, occult, uh, alcoholism, drug addiction, sexual abuse, whatever horrible shit that goes on in this world all the time. Whatever it may be, you gotta play the long game. And that's easier said than done when you're in the throes of your pain and your suffering, right? Because there are times where you, you know, Thoughts cross my mind too, like, is this worth it? Like, is all this worth it? Um, I always knew that life was a gift. And no matter how bad I felt that I was going to ride this thing out, um, maybe I'm delusional. I don't know. But that was the choice I made. Uh, but you look at it the long game. You're playing the long game. It's not a tip. It's not a trick. It's not a tactic. It's not a technique. It's not a hack, right? You're doing a strategy. And you're healing yourself. Be nice to yourself. Give yourself a break. Make friends with yourself. Because no matter where you go, there you are. And the one, like I said earlier, the one common in every relationship that you have, the one common denominator is me. Me. I'm the one. So if that's the case, then I got to start taking responsibility for everything I do. Everything I say. Everything I think. Right? And that, you know, it's the thing that like, they take back your power. But, you know, own it. Own yourself. Own your, your stuff. Even if it's painful, even if it's ugly. Just keep breathing and keep taking another step. I sound like a motivational video. But, you know, find your, your, your creative outlets. Find your artistic outlets. Find your athletic, your, your physical outlets. Find spiritual outlets. Whatever that means to you. Find, you know, financial resources. You know, wh whatever it may be. But, you know, you've got... You've got to, uh, really the biggest thing I would say is you got to be nice to yourself. You're doing the best you can do with what you have at that time based upon where you were and what you've been through. I know we're in what seems like a freer culture right now where people don't have to be bound by as much what their own 
family of origin says they should be doing and and people seem to be okay with just kind of being who they are it seems like we're coming into our own like that and I know this is I'm just like doing a bunch of double speak but let's talk about people that tell you you they give you advice they're not in the industry and they're telling you you shouldn't do that but part of it might be because they actually won't allow themselves to live the life they want to live be with the person they want to be with yeah choose to go outside the sort of status quo of of what their identity says they're supposed to be the human condition baby yeah right it happens all the time i mean i'm sure that you both felt it oh i've yeah but I've never been one to um, care about like convention. In fact, I might be more of an. <laughs> I'm kind of a natural. Yeah, and I and it's like I can't like a song that everybody likes right now. And then I hear it years later and go, actually, that's pretty good. But it, because it was so popular at that time, I was cringed. So I have that disease. I know that that is its own affliction. <laughs> Maybe it's the contrarian complex. I don't know what it is. Uh, <laughs> it has to do with authority. Okay. It has yes. to do with authority. So think there about you who your uh, real quickly. Just think about who your primary authority figures were in your life, Psst, mom and dad, and the relationship you have with them. That's okay. where it all stems from. Anyway, yes, they do. So you know, it takes courage to be an artist. It takes enormous courage to be an artist. Whatever your your art is, mm-hmm. um, it's not easy sitting down and pouring your heart into a script. Right? Even if it is a story you've created, it's still your blood, sweat, and tears right? in your heart on that page. That takes guts to sit in front of a camera and act out those words and perform it and bring it to life with a point of view. Incredibly hard. <laughs> Incredibly hard. Same for directing. Same for the production. Same for all of it. It's all challenging. So I, like, I salute all artists because it takes enormous courage. Um, and that kind of courage doesn't go unnoticed. Um, and when people who aren't chasing their dream or, or going after what they really want, whatever it may be, it doesn't necessarily have to be in the arts, right? Whatever it may be. When they aren't doing that and they have fallen in step to conventional wisdom, to groupthink, right? And I know a little bit about that because I got caught up in that little group thing. That is extremely detrimental to one's health and happiness and safety. And yeah, jealousy comes out of that. And so condemnation, it's the easiest thing in the world, right? We'll all pick an attack on each other constantly instead of supporting each other and, and encouraging each other. And then you see that the people who are the most successful uh, in any industry, in any, any walk of life, who are doing what they love, love what they're doing, they're happier, they're more peaceful, they're more successful, right? They're the most generous. They're the most supportive, the most loving uh, with their time, their resources, their money, whatever it may be, right? Because I think they see and they understand inherently how tough it is to put yourself out on the line, to put yourself out there, let yourself be seen, warts and all, right? Yeah, which is going back to, you know, we all sit there and beat ourselves up. Oh my God, what were they thinking about me? Was that terrible? Was that awful? I'll never work again, right? Relax, man. Take it easy. It's okay. That's why I think it's great. You go out and find a mentor, someone who's you know succeeded. And it doesn't even have to be in the same thing you're doing. In fact, I really encourage everyone to go out outside of their comfort zone 
into completely unknown territories and businesses and industries and start to learn about them. If you have an interest in it, not just you know willy-nilly, hey, I'm going to go into the auto manufacturing you know, plant today. You know, if you're interested in autos, great. But whatever it may be, right? And just go put yourself out there. Go to a workshop they have. Go to a, a seminar. Go to a convention, right? Go to a meeting and, and see what's going on. And, and necessarily that starts to inform you and on ways that you would never never have expected, really in the most wonderful ways, you know. Have you ever had an audition where it went horrible and then it turns out you got the part? <laughs> and you were shocked? Like you thought they didn't like you, they didn't even look up from their, you know, it's just some story like that? Only if we count every audition, yeah. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, that's happened, that's happened, yeah, quite a few times actually. And that is, that's, that's one of those times where I stopped and thought to myself, son, you don't know anything. You have got preconceived ideas. You've got presuppositions. You're, you're just like, man, that's, maybe you need to rethink some things, right? Um, and, uh, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing, right? Uh, because it takes you outside of yourself. And that's not what everyone else is doing. Right? You can live your whole life very comfortably doing what you're supposed to do. Go to school, get good grades, graduate, get a job, buy a house, get your mortgage, have a family, have kids, da 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 And that's all wonderful. But if it's not your thing, then it's not your thing. And you need to find out what your thing is and then go and do that. And doing that is going to necessarily bring up what you're talking about. People judging you or people being jealous of you or people trying to pull you down or or people you know trying to you know make it hard for you in any number of ways you know usually it's passive aggressiveness but um, you've got to find that strength within yourself and just keep soldiering on and fear do you think I mean because we we all hear like these buzz phrases about oh it's you know fear is love turn you know whatever the, the different things are but right. when when you actually see it happening and it could be from people that you went to school with that you were close in college let's say or whatever yeah. and then you go on a slightly different path and you see their fear reaction yeah and it becomes lonely because yeah you say well do i comply and stay with the group yeah. and now i have somewhere to go yeah or do i do what i want to do and then maybe the phone stops ringing yeah 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 that's crazy town right there. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but it's it can be the truth for a lot of people. Whatever it could be for entrepreneurs who want to start a business, and people say it you're ruining your life. Does. Don't leave that good job. Great, that's a great point. Yeah. So yeah, that that yeah, that's all all that happens to me. It has happened. It happens a lot less uh, to me now. But you know, that's because I've made a concerted effort to you know like really uh, keep myself more focused and more aware of what I'm doing and what's going on in any given situation that I am. Like I said, you know, awareness creates choice. The more awareness I have, the more choice I have. And the more choice I have, I'm always going to naturally choose what serves me and the situation better, you know. Um, so, you know, entrepreneurs and artists are really kind of one and the same thing because they all have the same struggle. You know, you're creating something from nothing, whatever it may be, and you're going to fail more often than you succeed. 
That's, that's just how it's going to go. And that requires a lot of courage and you're going to have to deal with a lot of doubts and a lot of fears and a lot of worries and a lot of resentments and jealousies and, 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 and. And you have to find your way through that because there is no one way. And anyone tries to tell you, oh, well, this is the way you do it is either lying to you, bullshitting you, or trying to sell you something. Really simple, right? Or all three. Or all three at the same time, <laughs> which is an especially distasteful combination. Um, so uh, be nice to yourself, man. Find out what works for you. And you're going to find out what works for you by finding out what doesn't work for you constantly. Fear, everyone has it, you know. Um, uh, Brene Brown became very, you know, popular with her TED talk and then you know her appearances on national television I think it's genius um, in its simplicity and it's it's you know showing your vulnerability you know look I don't have the answers I certainly don't in fact the more I learn the more I know I don't know anything right. in the grand scheme of things who the hell am I when you show yourself right when you put yourself out there when you let yourself be seen your words your artwork your direction whatever it may be your music your lyrics whatever it is your dancing your your body your hair your everything that's necessarily a vulnerable place but that's where all the magic happens right letting people come in and see you and and feel your humanity right and see it for all of its flaws, because we all have those flaws. We all do. And in this industry, it's really easy to put forth an image and have a narrative and then get that thing stamped, boom, 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 and you show up across all these, you know, television shows and all these radio interviews and all these podcasts and, you know, <laughs> or, you know, you're very pensive or whatever it may be. But that's not the whole picture. It never is, right? It's just what's in the frame. And what's in the frame is what's in the frame, but that's not the whole story, right? So don't be afraid to let someone know you don't know what's going on. Or you know what? Yeah, I'm scared, man. I don't know how this is going to go. That happens in, the, you know, I, I go and do a scene and it's a very emotional scene or it's a very dangerous scene or a very physical scene. God, I hope this goes well, right? But, you know, I've done my work. I've made strong choices and I know what the story being told is and I know what's going on and then I got to just trust the other actor with me. I got to trust the writing, the words on the page and the setting and the dynamic and just go. Let it happen, right? Similarly, I think it would be really well, it would be great advice and, and great thing to start to add that into your life as well. Kind of coming back full circle, art saved my life. I learned that through art. Five things an actor should not do in the audition room. Oh, wow. Five things an actor should not do in the audition room. The worst thing an actor can do is to have the smell of desperation on them. Neediness and desperation, it is death. It's anathema to what you want to have happen. And that is the, I forget five, that's the two things right there. Uh, if you go and put so much importance on an audition, I gotta have this, like, right? And most of, like, look, most actors are broke most of the time, right? Especially when you're starting out. 
sleeping on. I know I was sleeping on the floor in a one-bedroom apartment, sleeping on the floor, my right hand to God. So you know, you need the job, and uh, you know, you just you put everything on it. So you walk in, you're needy, you're desperate. Hope they like me, man. Nobody wants to work with that. Nobody wants to work with that. That's death, you know. So you've got to do everything in your power to to keep that from happening even if you need that job like you need oxygen right that would tell you if you if you kind of pull back and look at it you need to start finding other streams of revenue right if you have to get a side job right day job whatever they want to call it maybe day job is not the thing to do especially in today's day and age you can drive your damn car crazy to me but you can do it right i don't mean it's crazy to do it. it's like uh, what an amazing thing to be able I to know. i wish i had that option i know it's pretty good <laughs> very good hours you boy um so that would be the first thing i think the biggest thing to answer that question would for would be for an actor to get on the other side of the table so you sit on the casting side of the table and watch the actors come through nothing will inform you quite so rapidly as to every mistake that you make hmm that's interesting. Yeah. Because you're going to do your work. You're going to make your choices. Hopefully, we all do that. And most actors don't prepare enough in the beginning. They learn. But, you know, I don't think that's this crowd. Um, uh, and even this would go for writers, too, when you're taking a meeting, you know. you got to you got to do your work. you got to get prepared, make your choices, know what you're going to talk about, have your pitch. But if you're desperate, yeah, no one wants to be around that. They want to be around someone who's fun to be around. Someone who's prepared, who's professional, uh, who they can rely upon, and who's responsible, and fun. Hopefully, fun. And if you're funny, bonus. Not that that's important, but you know, it's a job. It's a job interview. Have there been times when you have felt desperate, and you feel like you might have? That was the reason that it didn't go well. That's how I learned. Hell yeah. <laughs> When I first started, I'd go for an audition. You know, the auditions didn't come very often. So when you had the audition, when I had an audition, I would think to myself, oh my God, I got to get this, I got to get this, I got to get this. Because I'm really competitive and driven and, you know, and ambitious. Um, and those aren't dirty words, by the way. Some people think they are. <laughs> We're actually going to have to bleep out uh, competitive. I'm sorry. I can say that, yeah. Seriously? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's that, that's... That's not okay on film courage. Sorry. <laughs> Duly noted. No, uh, so, uh, so uh, uh, I, I would, you know, I was desperate as they came. I wanted that job to succeed to say, yes, look what I have done. Right? And the other part of it, <clears throat> excuse me, was because I just, oh, I'm going to be a star. Right? And in the beginning, it was like doing a five and under, you know, day player role. Had no idea what any of it meant. I didn't get the broader context of it. So you walk in, I walk in and I would be desperate or I'd be needy or I'd be, who knows, who knows, any number of things. But yeah, definitely I did. And I learned, started to learn like, oh my God, that's not good. Don't want to do that. And, and for me, it did happen when I got on the other side and, and, and watched the casting process happen. And uh, you can tell right away. You know, so when there were times, let's say, when other things were going on, maybe you had a, several projects, and then you just happened to pop in for another one or something, and then that sort of—I don't want to call it breeziness because that's the wrong word—but the, the not needing it so badly ended up you getting another one because they're like, "Oh, I like this guy." 
Did that happen? You're asking yeah. me? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Because they're, they're again, managing your, well, I wasn't even thinking about managing your emotions, but you're not desperate. You're not needy. You've got a job. You're feeling good about yourself. And look, let's be honest, in, the, in, in the, this business, there's so many ups and downs. Like, it's not a consistent, you know, unless you're really lucky, you have your own show, uh, uh, you're part of an ensemble show, you're, you're, you know, movie star, whatever it may be, and, and you know, you're going to be working for X number of days or you're going to be working for X number of months. That's a different situation. For everyone else, which is literally 98% of the acting industry, right? It's yeah. this all the time, sure. right? So if you are working and you get a chance to go on an audition in between that, man, you just feel like you're on top of the world. Desperation and neediness are nowhere to be found. You've already, you're, you know, you're up here with it. But instead of looking at it like, yeah, my, you know, doesn't stink because I'm working and yeah, yeah, you know, everyone starts posturing and fronting like, <laughs> and you're like, slow your roll, take it easy. I'm happy for you. Never say that, of course. Never say that. Um, but, uh, you know, look at that and see what that is. What is that? What's going on? Well, it's because I'm not, I don't need this. I don't feel like I need this. Yeah, I want it. Sure, I'm going to do my best job, but, you know, I'm more loose. I'm more free. And, you know, improvisation for everyone, I think, is one of the most informative, important things you could ever do, you know? Uh, whether you're acting, writing, directing, whatever, it's really smart. You know, a little side note. Um, there's a, a, a guy I know, really smart guy, and he was going to uh, get into his father's business. Father did very well in uh, this industry and won tons of awards and really, really uh, powerful and, and great, talented person. And son wanted to do the same thing. And he said, well, you know, if you want to, you know, direct and write and produce, um, you, you got to know what acting is. You got to know how to talk to the actors, and and f I see that happen so frequently, where directors they don't understand the process, they don't know what's going on, and they're just like, what is you know they want to stay away from the actor, or they they will not necessarily demonize isn't the right word, but kind of categorize the actor as difficult, crazy, stupid, whatever, right? And so he told his son that you need to go take acting classes, and I was like, what? He doesn't need acting classes. He's not going to act. But it wasn't about that. It was about understanding the actor's process, the craft, the skill, and everything else. And, you know, he knew he was going to be an actor, but he sat in there. It was like, I don't know, a six-week uh, course and showed up every class, you know, got up on stage, you know, did all the work. And, um, yeah, one of the smartest things he ever did, you know. And... He's not doing that at all now. I think that's smart. You know, you should learn all those things because especially in today's business, you know, Rome is burning right in front of us, right? Commercials have disappeared, which is how most actors made a living in between like a real, you know, put your teeth into a role, whether it be in television or film or whatever. You get your residuals, you get your pension benefits, you get your health care. Kind of important, right? Yeah. That's pretty much disappeared. And now everything has become another thing altogether, right? Uh, Non-union jobs, etc. cetera. Um, but you know, you, if you're just gonna say, well, I'm just gonna be an actor, I'm just gonna be a writer, or I'm just gonna be a director, I'm just gonna do this. I think that that's probably 
not the most resourceful way to go about things. It would be better if you were a conglomeration of everything. And, uh, and truthfully, uh, if, again, if we're going to be honest, you know, everyone wants to make a mark, wants to you know, say something. So maybe creating your own thing is the smartest thing to do. And to that end, like I, I mentioned before, um, this transmedia uh, model of, of the business these days is really brilliant. Um, and it's because it, it brings in like all aspects of where the industry is currently and where it's going in the future. Uh, and it also looks at it from a business perspective, uh, financially in the most intelligent way that I've seen. Uh, I'm not the de facto, you know, oracle to talk on that, but um, it makes a lot more sense than the way people approach things uh, currently, because usually they'll write a script and you sell it and, you know, it's a one and done, so to speak. Or maybe you're fortunate and the, the movie does really well or the series does really well. And, and but then, you know, you're back on that, you know, well, what's your next thing going to be? Right. Transmedia doesn't do that. You have that one super story. Right. And then you have kind of like your soapbox, your message that is the through line with everything that comes out of your super story. And then that story is told over a variety of media, right? And it's not the same story. So you can explore characters, you can explore locations, you do it via podcasts, uh, maybe a guided tour, maybe apps that you know further take the story down another path that the movie or the television series or the documentary or whatever it may be wasn't able to fully uh, explain because of the parameters of that part of the story. And then you know you take something like that, you flesh all that out, you take something like that to an investor. Now you're not just a, a writer or a director or an actor or an artist or a Hollywood type coming to ask someone to invest in your movie, singular product. And by the way, most movies are losing financial propositions. And there are a number of reasons for that, right? A number of reasons for that. And the least of which has to do with your talent or your skill set. But it does have to do with your skill set in the, the arena of business. So now if you come to someone with a transmedia model and you show them what you've got and you explain to it how you're going to, you know, distribute this and how it's going to be uh, rolled out and what, what the plan is for it. And then you have the numbers to back up the financial uh, aspect of what you're asking for and what the return on that investment would be. Now you're talking dollars and cents. Now you're talking studios are like, oh, okay, now you've got the studio person's full attention. You've got the network person's full attention. You've got the uh, investment banker's full attention, right? And this stuff never gets talked about. Well, I won't say never, that's not right, but it doesn't get talked about often enough and certainly not in a way that would be more helpful to people because, you know, if you're going to create something, you're going to go to all that effort, you know, you want it to be seen. You know, Houston Howard talks about the, the phenomena of art, like if no one really experiences it, then, you know, what was it? And forgive me, I'm butchering it, but you want it to be seen. So you have to have a distribution model. And then beyond that, you have to have a back end. There's a sale. There's the first sale in business. You have your sale. And most sales are either break even, and many times it's a loss leader. So it costs me, you know, $5 to make my widget, and I'm selling it to you for $3, so I'm losing on it, right? But what I've done is I've gained a customer. 
And it's not in the first sale you make your money. You make your money on every subsequent sale on the back end, as they say. And, and that's taken into place. That's taken into consideration in the transmedia model, which, I mean, it's brilliant. It's not that it hasn't been before, but it's smart. It's really smart. If you were going to take a movie like Forrest Gump yes. and apply a transmedia model to it, how would you do it? So Forrest Gump, right? A movie I love. Great movie. Yeah. Heartstring movie, right? Um, so, I mean, I didn't write it. So, but you look at it. I mean, everyone says life's like a box of chocolates. Let's just say that's the the the, the kind of the message, the the thematic, the 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 soapbox of it, right? And that the the broader super story is that no matter what the obstacle is in your life, right? It doesn't have to be the defining aspect of your life. Okay, and so you could spin those, you could spin that message off in a number of ways. You could take that message and say, like, you know, you could, you could, Forrest was uh, uh, mentally challenged, right? So you could do a documentary about people like Forrest, right? There's one thing right there. You could create a podcast about the town, I forget what it was in Alabama, I forget right now. Right. You could do the podcast about that town and the various locations in that town. Interesting. You're not talking about Forrest Gump. You're not talking about Forrest, right? Something Bow, Alabama just came to me. Doesn't oh, okay. it, It'll come. But anyway, mm -hmm. that's another thing. You could create a board game about uh, the invention of the brace that Forrest wore as a child. This is the transmedia model. Incidentally, um, today's like today, the kids of today, and that's the marketplace, right? Those are the people who go and see stuff. They don't even watch television. They don't know what television really is for all intents and purposes. They get, they get as starstruck by a YouTube character, channel, creator, whatever, as, they, as we did looking at, you know, oh my God, it's... <laughs> Who did you go, oh my God, over? Oh, uh, well, I wanted to be Brooke Shields. Brooke Shields. When I Shields. was a little girl, and I was just, Perfect. I would look at all the teen magazines and go, I want to be her. Absolutely, right, exactly. That doesn't happen anymore today. They go nuts over the YouTube thing. And everything's in smaller, kind of bite-sized content is the buzzword. I kind of hate that word, but we'll, we'll just go with it. <laughs> that's, see, that's we the might have to bleep that out, that's too. The, <laughs> yeah. That's the contrarian in me. <laughs> But um, uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg and his partner, oh God, I forgot who it is right now. Um, they've created a new company and they've invested a lot of money into it and it's all videos that are five minutes and less or six minutes and less. Interesting, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So that's a whole other transmedia model you could, you could take, little five, six minute stories. It's not the whole story. It's just parts of it that further enrich it. Because what you want to do is you want to build a brand, a franchise with raving fans. Right? You want to build something. You want to create something along the lines of what George Lucas had done with Star Wars, J.K. Rowling did with Harry Potter, what Steve Jobs did with Apple. For God's sake, is there really anything that magnificent about Apple computers? Not really. No. Well, the two Steves were interesting in their own right. 
So I think people wanted to know about them as well. Oh, Wozniak and Jobs? Yeah. Right, were, that dynamic, right? Yeah, they were, they were an interesting but duo. But did that have anything to do with the nuts and bolts of that computer? Not no, really, no, exactly. But it made the, the company more interesting, you know. But right. but do you think, and, and I, I hate to, dis, I just want to challenge okay. this idea for a little Please bit. Please do. It's great to think about building an audience. Yeah. Is it really that easy now In when we're shooting this, 2019? Mm -hmm. uh, Back when you know YouTube was starting, was it 2005 or whatever? Five, yes. Right. So okay, that was one time, but it's gotten much. It, it's just a different animal now. Do you, how how easy is it to really build an audience? To, well, nothing's easy. Nothing's easy, right? And nothing worthwhile is easy at all. If it were, everyone would be doing it. However, at our disposal are any number of ways to build an audience that were not available before. It's kind of mind-blowing that, you know, with your smartphone, um, with your laptop, you know, you can start to build a fan base. You can start to capture email addresses. You can start to create content. You can start to, there's another way, you know, you, you're, you could create a blog. That's another thing. These, these all are ways of reaching out, telling your story and gathering the information and gathering fans' interest in your project, right? Because, you know, you, you write this incredible, th most talented, most beautifully written thing in the world, right? Or the most unbelievably acted piece of, of work that had ever been done. If there's not an audience for it, no studio or network's gonna invest in it. Because, right, they want a return on their investment. Well, if we took Forrest Gump, sure, and that was '94, was it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, um, I was like four at that time, maybe oh, really? five. Oh, okay. Hundred yeah. years old. <laughs> I was, yeah, I was two. <laughs> I don't so, look yeah. bad for over no, five hundred, no, right? Don't. No, yeah, thank you. No, I think the the prehistoric years were good to you. Um, thank you. Um, but if we took uh, Forrest Gump in today's today's landscape yeah. it, it probably wouldn't have had the same appeal because there's so many things competing at that time in 94 there was Nirvana and whatever I don't know what month Forrest Gump came out but there were there there was the grunge movement there were different things but it wasn't we weren't competing for so many things. Yeah, there were video True. games, but it True. wasn't no. on the level it is you now. You didn't have that many things mm -hmm. vying for your attention. Sure. That's right. And we didn't have these little addiction devices, right. by the way. Side note, we're all addicts. We, we are. I, see, I go through, I, I see people of all walks of life, homeless, whatever, with, with cell phones. They're and they are. Into it, yeah. they're, they're a, it was interesting. I saw a woman, a homeless woman, asking a young girl for advice on how to fix her phone. And they were fixing it together. And I was like, wow, that's oh, really cool. fascinating. Yeah. It was pretty cool. And, and the girl like, knew like, exactly what to do. And anyway, that's, that's a side note. But that shows you where we are. You know, and this was in a park, and the woman's on a bench, and she had a question, and the girl helped her. And so, anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. I love that. So, building an audience, it's catchy. How possible is it today? Well, it's not catchy, it's imperative. It's imperative. And, you know, you can't compare 1994 to now. It's not fair. Right. That's true. Yeah, you just can't. You can't. And, and the, but that's, that's a common pushback whenever I talk about this. And this is, you know, this is nothing new. I didn't create this or, or anything. Uh, it's a common pushback. Oh, you know, name a director. Didn't have to do that, right? <laughs> um, yeah, you're right. They didn't. 
but that was then and this is now. That's true. Right? And so if you continue to do things that worked back then and you're doing those things now and you're wondering why you're not getting a similar result, maybe change your approach. So uh, yeah, it's not catchy to build an audience, it's imperative to build an audience. And everything should be done with that end in mind. But I also think that, not but, I will say and, I think that looking at it in a financial aspect that makes sense to have people want to invest in your project, that's also imperative. You know, because otherwise you're looking at writing something one time, right? Acting in something one time and hoping against hope that it does well, right? <sighs> Come on, lucky seven, <laughs> right? Right? And in, in, in a large extent, that is kind of, we're all gambling in this mm. industry, right? But doesn't it make more sense that instead of your gambling that you, oh God, I hope this works out, right? I hope this works out that you have a strategy in place that no matter what happens here, it's supported here, 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 here. And by the way, each one of those is a revenue stream. So how does an actor incorporate transmedia into their brand, which is they themselves? So I'm clearly not looking at this like an actor, right? I mean, that's I've kind of stepped out of the acting realm. Now I'm really in the producer, writer, uh, business realm majorly right but but they're all tied together um, so I don't know how to oops so sorry I don't know how to answer that question I, I have certainly not come across any actors that are even thinking like this um, I don't know how to answer that okay. but I think it's smart to do it because I do know I can say this um, you know, there are lots of stories of actors who created their own vehicle. And Billy Bob Thornton created Sling Blade. We all know what happened there. And we on and on and on and on. I mean, even Howard Stern, for God's sake, not even an actor, but, you know, there's a guy who understands, you know, media, calls himself the king of all media, yeah. right? Smart. Makes that crazy movie, has his... Basically, his his radio is his radio program. Now he's on, you know, call it a podcast. It's on Sirius Radio. Signed a deal for five hundred million dollars, right? So, look at that. Think about that. How can you apply that to your thing? Because if you're going to sit back as an actor and wait for the audition, the role, that one that's going to make it for you, man, you know, you could get older than me, and and it never happens. Five hundred years old. Um. And it just makes more sense that you would put your energy and focus into something that makes sense in today's world, makes sense in today's uh, uh, entertainment world. You know, Jeff Katzenberg, head of DreamWorks and his partner, now are making six-minute videos, and they've got a whole bunch of money behind it. And they're, they, I, I guarantee you, Mr. Katzenberg doesn't invest money to lose it, right? So that's something I'd pay attention to as an actor, as a writer, as a director, as a producer. What's going on there? Let me investigate that. Even if I have no idea what I'm doing, dive in. Think bigger, man. Think bigger. Yeah, it was interesting to go into the library and see posters on the wall for like sign up for a YouTuber class to become a YouTuber. And then there's Jake Paul's book like featured. It's just fascinating because you're right. Gen Xers and, and, and whatever, we were used to looking at 
whoever our favorite celebrity was and thinking, how do I become like that? Or how do I, you know, sort of get around that? But that was a different world. That was where there were, you know, it was just, a, it, I, I don't want to use the word gatekeeper. It's been used okay. to, it's, it's, it's a, it. another word I want to bleep out. So, okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but there were quote gatekeepers Absolutely. there and, uh, and now it's different. And now the, the, it's not the gatekeepers, it's how do you compete with eyeballs? And so that is very difficult. That's a new dilemma. It's not now getting past and getting your headshot into the to the proverbial pizza box and 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 trying to deliver it. It I, I don't know if anybody ever really did that, but it was a great story. Sounds great, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Being the singing telegram, <laughs> I'm really dating myself with that one. But and 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 then oh hey here's my headshot. You know that, but how do you compete with eyeballs so great yeah now the power is in everybody's hands right. to create something right. but now you're competing with a gazillion things true yeah and that is the new dilemma uh, okay so that that is true and that's also not completely accurate so if we think about that you're not creating with all of that because you are not if, you know in business if you try to be all things to everybody you're dead in the water right Right, so you're talking about a brand yourself, right, or your project, branding it. Okay, well then you have to figure out what your message is, who's going to resonate with that. You know, the, in the marketing world, they call that your avatar. You know, who is the person you're talking? You think about one person, like, oh, my my person is uh, Lisa, and Lisa is a uh, 35 year old mother of two girls, and she has a pit bull. She's very dainty. She likes to wear uh, very light, uh, kind of, uh, uh, what's, the, what's the word? I can't think of the pastel colors. But yet she has this pit bull with an attitude, right? But see how specific I'm getting? So that's what we're going to. Instead of going, oh, I've got a gazillion eyeballs. Cool. But let's just bring it down. Let's bring that focus even tighter, right? right. Just like you do in a camera shot. You don't have the whole room we're in, right? That's true. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, and that way now now you've got this from this big unyieldy thing down to something that's much more manageable. So you can be more focused, more specific, your choices are stronger, your direction is clearer. I mean that's that's just that's how I would approach it. That's how, you know, that would be the smarter way to approach it, I believe. So maybe I'm wrong. Huh? Sorry. Is the actor finding their one Lisa casting director? Is that who they're... Man, I don't know that that's... You know, I'll tell you what. Most actors will not tell you what they did to succeed, to get their success. Because I remember when I started out, man, if I could just talk to someone who knows this business and can tell me, you know, how they got where they got, what they did, right? Not that I'm going to do exactly that, but it would give me a more clear picture and understand the the workings, the dynamics at play, the the you know maybe some of the personalities, maybe some of the relationships, right? That would be really helpful. What I found out is most people don't know how they got where they got. They just got lucky, right? They don't really think about it. I think that's fair to you know most people don't think about oh I just did the you know you hear the uh, the thing that you said earlier you know keep your head down just work hard and you know be a good person and like okay man great <laughs> you know I was more interested in the strategy like what is the strategy how do you get from A to Z right go back to the Steves with Apple so what did he do to make uh, his computer 
be more desirable than others, right? So he took it from all these eyeballs. And by the way, everyone was using the PC. It's still the dominant computer, oh. right? Mm -hmm. The dominant one. Wow. I think Apple has 10% market share, maybe Maso Manos, I don't know. So what he did was he took his design and his salesmanship and started to craft and create a message, right? Think different, mm -hmm. not think differently for the writers out there, <laughs> which is grammatically correct, but think different. And then he had that infamous, you know, 1984-esque commercial that right. he did, but boy, did it move people, right? And then he had some successes and failures, and then ultimately what, when Apple really took off was when he turned it into the iMac and brought it out in, you know, five fruity flavors, you know, all the colors. Right. Ooh, I want the blue one. Ooh, I want the pink one, right? And uh, everything changed. Sure. Right? Everything changed. He created the i the iMac, that's what it was called, right? And then after that, I think came out the iPod. When people started making jokes, the iMac, the iPod, the iRack, the iRon, all those things, right? Um, but he had a strategy in place because the iMac was supported uh, and supported the iPod, and they were both going to be supported by iTunes. He had a framework in place, sure. right? So he gets you with one thing but then he's gonna keep getting you on the back end with things. Boom, boom, boom. Take that same strategy and apply it to your career, wherever you are, whatever your discipline is, whatever your art is. I think that's just a smarter way to approach things, right? Clearly it's more business oriented, but again, it is called show business, right? And it would behoove all of us to think more about the business aspect of it. You certainly have to know your craft. You certainly have to have uh, a strong uh, viewpoint, and you certainly have to have your voice developed, but it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that business to it. Why do you think people take advice from non-working professionals in the industry? Huh. Why do they? I don't know. I think that's another big question, but that's not smart to take advice from someone who's not, you know, doing well in whatever it is they're doing. If it maybe, you know, there's always temporary setbacks and there's lulls, there's ebbs and flows, but I mean, to take acting career advice or to take writing advice from a banker, it's an interesting choice. I don't know that that's the most resourceful choice um, to take acting advice from your mother, who is, uh, you know, a clinical psychologist, maybe a little more resourceful, but I don't know if that's the best choice at all, because, you know, you, you would make more sense to take advice from someone who's doing it and succeeding at it, no matter what it, you know, what level it's at. You know, maybe you you know you've pushed back, and, and I hear that a lot when I talk about you know transmedia and business and money. Well, I just want to create cool stuff. So do I, man. So do I, right? I also want to be compensated for it. Really, really cool compensation, right? Like more than like a bowl of soup and a hat. <laughs> um, so uh, I don't know why people do that, but that especially with actors, that happens a lot, a lot. I suppose it happens. To I mean, that's not fair. It probably happens to, to everyone in this business um, more often than it doesn't. And I think it's just where you're, you're, you know, you're reaching, you're, you're grasping at straws. 
You just, anyone, somebody, you know. Do you get asked to play roles where you have an accent? British accent, Australian? That's so interesting. I have a facility for accents and uh, I guess characters. I used to sit as a kid and, and watch TV. <laughs> it would drive my family crazy. And then as I got better, then they would laugh and they enjoyed it. But I would just mimic the voices I was hearing. I don't know why I did it, I just did it, you know? And I would just try to find the placement of the voice and the breathing pattern and how they would hold their body and whatever. I didn't know what the hell I was doing, I was just doing it. Um, I have not done any, I've done one character with an accent and, and I don't think I did a very good job with it, but I did it. Um, and again, accents, yeah, I'd love to do it, uh, not just for the, just to do the accent, you know, as a, speaking as an actor, you know, if that's what the character requires, if that's who the character is, if it's, you know, if it serves the story, of course, otherwise, you know, it just becomes like a, you know, hey, did you hear my cool accent? Huh? Huh? How about that accent? That's good. Huh? That's Sounded good. like I was straight out of West Texas, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's funny because I was actually going to, I was thinking your George Bush accent and I was like, no, don't say no, that. No, George, George Bush is so, George Bush, yeah, George Bush. Greatest George Bush word ever. Strategery. Oh, yeah. Honest to God. I'm the decider and strategery. Love that. What's the hardest accent you've ever had to learn? The hardest accent I ever had to learn? Yeah, what yeah is the American accent. How is that, how is that different from, uh, I mean, like what, what well, I, our I, cadence is like what? Well, first of all, English is an extremely difficult language to learn. Farsi was my first language. Yeah, I was born in Iran, in Tehran. So, uh, I mean, I came to, this, to the States when I was two, but I, you know, started to speak and, you know, it was, you know, two-year-olds talk, they can speak. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but you know, you're a kid, you don't think about it. You don't beat yourself up. You give yourself a break. You don't even worry about what other people think about you, right? And I'm not suggesting that we all become children again. <laughs> indigo children. Yeah, indigo. okay, indigo children. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, the, the hardest accent, you know what's really tough? Uh, if to try to speak, actually to speak the language would be, uh, for me it would be Chinese, would be Korean, would be Vietnamese, uh, and Japanese. And I'm probably missing several other languages, but those are the ones that are most top of my mind right now. When I hear Vietnamese being spoken, just a simple inflection in the way you say the word changes the entire meaning of the word. Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. I asked a friend of mine about how, how long do you think it would take to, to speak, take me to speak Vietnamese if I started to apply myself at it? It was, oh, take you forever. He just, and this, this is a guy, a friend of, of my wife and I, he's uh, got a PhD in mathematics um, and he's an artist. He created this incredible uh, virtual reality piece uh, based around Barack Obama's election. And, and uh, that's a whole thing, but it's, it's really cool. But anyway, his name is Koi Nguyen. And he just like very, just casually said something as he was work, we were working and he goes, oh, forget it, take you forever. Difficult, difficult. <laughs> and I was like, wow, okay. Thanks for the uh, vote of support there. Um, but th that, those would be tough, those are tough. Farsi is very tough for the American ear, you know? Two sounds, they have che and re, right? They, that just, that just, Americans are like, what'd you say? What? Right. Yeah. 
Can you explain that? <laughs> yeah. Can you explain that? <laughs> can you say that in American? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where are you from? Hey, where are you from? I get that a lot. Yeah, I get that a whole lot. Well, you have a, a great look because you could be so many things, but you could definitely play out, out of West Texas. Absolutely. And so... Probably could, yeah. Do, do, do you have different looks on your, on your um, uh, you know, just for your website and different things where you just try to play it more Anglo or whatever or try to be more uh, Mediterranean? That's a great question. You know, uh, I have necessarily played different characters who looked a different way but in coming back to you know you know, want to work and you want to be successful and you want to continue that path what ended up being my bread and butter were um uh i call it suit man um because i this this is new the hair and, and uh -huh. not shaving like having that. a beard well thank you like women it. love it yeah, guys not so much oh, okay it's interesting it's been a very interesting the past uh, couple of years now i've grown my hair out uh, to see the reaction and stuff. And and it's kind of been, I say this, you know, like is a career suicide? Am I out of my effing mind to do this? Because I was always clean shaven, short hair. I look at the pictures of myself, I'm like, oh my God, who is that? Who is that guy? But that guy worked all the time. But it was a look, right? right? Mr. Morgan Stanley. Not, I mean, totally. not oh, an I did. endorsement. No, no, yeah. no, no. I did a lot of financial yeah. institution uh -huh. ads. I did a lot of billionaires. Oh, yeah, I can see that. Technological, you know, luminary kind of people, uh, doctors, lawyers, like these authority figure people, right? Um, and I guess it's kind of my voice and, and, and my energy and whatever. Um, Got to dance with who brung you, right? But there's a whole other aspect. Like I, I jokingly say, you know, when people haven't seen me in a while, like, oh, wow, your hair. I'm like, yeah, man, this is who I am on the inside. I just let it come out. Yeah. Right? Because it was a funny thing that happened to me on sets. You know, I'd be on the set and I'd have this, you know, hair like combed back and, you know, very clean cut, you know, probably racist, definitely conservative, definitely, you know, whatever. Uh, Got to have fun with it. <laughs> and then I would start talking about the things that I'm doing uh, later that week and people just kind of go, huh. <laughs> you, you, yeah, yeah, they're like, you know, you, you don't talk anything like the way you look. And that sounds so obvious when you hear it, but I would just wouldn't think about it because I got a job at hand and I'd go back and do the job and that'd be a craft service table or it would be, you know, on set between takes or whatever. Uh, and then later at night at home, I, usually at night you're lying in bed like, what, what does that mean? What it, and now I go back and look at the pictures of myself and I'm like, oh my God, yeah, you know. Okay, that makes sense. I wouldn't expect that guy to talk like that either. Interesting. Yeah. You know, to stay sane in this business, um, I, I, uh, well, stay sane, but it, it's something that's important to me. And it was a part of, you know, recovering from being under mind control for all those years in, in a cult, um, which is really just an abusive relationship in a lot of ways. It's, it's a lot more than that, but that's really what it is. So, um, being of service to others who are, are not as fortunate as me. So just by the nature of me having this white skin, right? I have got an easier path in life. I just do. And I'm a man and I'm a tall man. Mm -hmm. And you're very attractive. Oh, well, thank you very yeah. much. Well, that, that, so those are things going in my favor that I had nothing to do with. That was just the genetic lottery, right? That's just the roll of the dice. So, you know, I'm married to a, a woman 
who was a black woman and grew up in a very unique situation, civil rights movement. My father-in-law and his best friend uh, started the civil rights movement. So it gave me a whole other perspective that I'd never looked at before in life, ever. And I feel like an, a heel for not noticing it. Because um, in my family, so my father's Iranian, my mother's American, well, they're both Americans, but you know he came from Iran. And um, they had four boys. First of all, they, they eloped to get married. Oh, wow. My mother still wants to fight me on that, that she didn't elope. But I don't know, you tell me. If you get married, mm-hmm. okay, and neither family is, is excited about the marriage, okay? Like his family had a, a, a wife picked out for him. Oh. Right. And he was raised Muslim, can't stand religion, right? Thinks it's the scourge of the earth. Uh, my mother was raised as a Mormon. Oh, she, interesting. Exactly. Wow. She didn't want to, exactly. What a family dinner that would be. Hang on. <laughs> there's more. <laughs> but wait, there's more. Uh-huh. So uh, they got married in Reno, Nevada. Wow. On December 31st. Wow. With none of the family members there. Fascinating. That's eloping, am I wrong? Uh, I would imagine. I would imagine it kind chapels. of feels like, what, right? Right? I yeah. Mean, yeah. Those little chapels. In Re- I've been to Reno. They have some really interesting, like these. It's a gambling capital. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's Nevada. Right. Reno and Vegas, right? So they were in Reno because they were living in San Francisco at the time. Or he was going to school up there, something like that. Anyway, uh, uh, they have four boys. I'm the oldest of four boys. All three of my brothers are gay. Wow. Right. I'm the black sheep. <laughs> Amazing, right? And then on top of that, uh, we moved a lot. Like every two and a half, three years, was the new kid again, new guy, with this really long Iranian name. Like it's a proper Iranian name, but I look like Steve Apple Pie. Right. That, and so how conflicting. Yeah, and my last name uh, is Bijarchi, right? Dixon is my middle name. My full first name is Daryush. So Daryush, Dixon, Bijarchi. There's a mouthful but then I look like this. So there's a huge disconnect, cognitive dissonance every time I'm new kid. And by the way, A, B, C, D. So I was either the first or second kid called every time I moved. Oh gosh. Awesome. <laughs> and you're the new guy and it's a funny name. So there was always that conversation, wow. right? Yeah, 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 it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. How do you reconcile that being from sort of two different worlds and maybe not even identifying with either one. Just like, I, I don't know, I'm assuming. Yeah, I, I don't no, mean to assume for well, you. you man, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, it's a lot. It's, so part of it is just that's, that's my life. That's how I was raised. That was the cir- those were the circumstances of, of me, of my life. And then as I've gotten older, I start to realize, wow, that's a lot. That's a lot, right? Like your reaction just now. Three gay brothers? Yeah, three gay brothers. Not one, three, right? Out of four, right? Muslim and a Mormon. Iranian and American, right? Had to elope, even though mom doesn't like that. Sorry, mom. Um, It is a lot. And then on top of that, Iran became the axis of evil. Sure. Right? In the eyes of America. In the eyes of a lot of people. In the eyes of America, right? Mm -hmm which is a whole other conversation to have, by the way, uh, for another time. And then America, by the Iranians, is called the Great Satan. And my friend uh, Cyrus Copeland wrote a great book about his father, and uh, we knew each other growing up in Iran. And um, it's a great book, Off the Radar. I highly recommend it. 
but um, he says, you know, I have the blood of the great Satan and the axis of evil flowing <laughs> through my veins. And I started to laugh. I couldn't stop laughing. And I was like, dude, you hit the nail on the head. It's kind of bananas. And then, but you know, I live in America. I've lived most of my life in this country. You know, all, all but about five and a half years have been in this country. And um, I love Iran. I love Iran. And not all Iranians hate Americans, by the way. No, they don't. Yeah, they that's don't. yeah, that's something that our media has definitely helped to portray. Sorry. Well, yeah, no, it's it, they don't. And uh, you know, when when my friend went to, uh, to when Cyrus went to Iran, he was doing research on the book. He had an interaction, or he he burned his foot in, in the in the sauna, I think. So he went to see the doctor at this hotel that he was staying at, and and he's like, oh, you know, you're you're bandaging, you know, the leg of of the great Satan, and and, he, and the doctor <clears throat> says, uh, well, look, um, there's a big difference between your government and your people, just as there's a big difference between my government and my people. And right now I'm treating a person, and you're talking to a person, and the government doesn't have anything to do with this. Interesting. Right? Yeah. And that's a wisdom that that's not just that that's very commonplace in Iran which is one of the most educated populations in the entire Middle East certainly in the world uh, they put up they place a premium on education um, and they're one of the oldest civilizations in our planet right and there's a wisdom to that comment like the government is the government the people are the people and they're two separate beings the government can be saying one thing but the people have a different feeling altogether so um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's been challenging because since 1977 when the Re or 79 when the revolution occurred, the Iranian revolution, which we, you know, we escaped luckily by, I mean, had the clothes on our back and suitcases. That was it. <laughs> it, was, it was not fun. But we got off a lot easier than a lot of families did. But since that time, man, you know, as soon as people find out I have Iranian blood, you know, things go sideways, you know. And it's always very small, it's just, you know, but it, it goes sideways. You can see it in people's faces, you can hear it in their voice, you can see it in their body language. And, you know, inside, <clears throat> I get upset. May I that's okay. interrupt for one yeah, moment? That's I was right. thinking of, of, a, of a book by Flannery O'Connor, and she wrote a lot about, you know, racism in the South. And she talked, she, there was one line where she said, like, I feel sorry for the people that are half because they have it the hardest because I'm actually, she was reading it, so I'm like imitating her voice. And that, that is very difficult when you are in, you, you're not a whole of something in terms of being accepted by both, by, by yeah. one side or another. Yeah. I think that's very difficult for people when they're a mixture of something in that sense. I know we're all mixtures of something, but right. because you're never it's almost like you're not part of the one side totally i don't know it, i'm only well, speaking of my own experience yeah so. i don't you know it, it's 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 everybody's got their something right like this is definitely you know like again i'm a white man in america in a first world you know first world country white man and i've got money in the bank i got food in the fridge and a roof over my head so what am i talking about however you know, the emotional world is a different thing. And then having to deal with, you know, the social aspect, the fabric of wherever I am, yeah, it, it's, you know, I, st I got choked up. I stopped, you stopped it. Uh, 
it it does, man. It bothers me. It wears me out, and it gets. Uh, and I'm white. <laughs> Imagine if I had darker skin, right? Or maybe an even bigger nose, or thicker lips, or nappy hair, right? I don't know. Then what, right? So I, and in a lot of ways, what do I? Who am I to talk? I can only speak about my experience, and. Uh, Hmm. I don't know. That's a big question. That's 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 a lot. It says a lot. I I I, I, I do feel Iranian in, in so many ways. It was my first language, my first sounds, the first music, the first smells, the first food. You know, uh, the first sights were necessarily all in Iran. They're all Persian. It's all that, right? And that's deep, deep, deep inside me. I remember when we went to uh, live in Iran, I was about 12 years old when we went back. Oh. And it was like going back to a very familiar place. I don't necessarily call it home because, you know, I was a kid and I thought America was, that's all I really knew consciously. But it was like the sound, the rhythm, the cadence, the smells, the, the beat, you know, the groove of the whole thing was all very familiar, uh, which was wonderful. Yeah, really wonderful in ways that I can't really fully explain. And you don't get cast as an Iranian, I would imagine? <laughs> I mean, I don't see it in you at all. No, I never. See, I see a guy that could never. be from San Diego. He yeah. could be from, yeah. from... Like this, they think of, oh, you're a beach guy, you're a surfer. Right, like... but I've also seen photos of you from, from doing the research, and right, you could right. be, yeah, the Morgan Stanley... You know, guy that's on the 18th floor and it's is amazing. with the steeple, you know, hands and, you know, guy, a guy on speakerphone and is like, you know. I did a lot of roles like that. <laughs> a whole lot. Yeah, yeah. And it's always the most fun when you get to be the, uh, the obnoxious, you know, like the asshole. Sure. So it's sure. just, come on. Where else can you act like that and get paid for it and not get arrested and have people hate you because they know you're just playing a part, Right. Sure, but that must be interesting to reconcile with that because then you're also playing a role in that sense that may be fearful of actually who you really are or where you came from. Oh, yes. And so well, it's like a, a weird thing, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've had to, yeah, I've had to go to that, be that guy that, you know, the short hair, the, you know, steeple hands, the, you know, master of the universe, Mr. Suit Man, as I called it, and had to say some ugly words and act, you know, less than favorably toward other people and say some really, some ideologies that I don't share at all. And, uh, you know, it's, I can jump into that and do it easily because I've heard it come at me and I've heard it come at, you know, my loved ones more often than I care to mention. Um, but, uh, yeah. It's, it's a weird one. You know, yeah, here I am. I've got this hair grown out, and I'm not playing suit man anymore. And uh, I'm talking about trans media. But it, <laughs> right? Uh, and creating this something, you know, a, a whole different thing, like a, a franchise type of a thing, which is like, it's crazy big thinking. But you know what? Why not? Why not? Because that guy, I feel like that guy's been played out. He can always come back. I mean, you can cut hair, shave, and oh, yeah. throw a suit and tie on, and, you know, he's, I'm back, you know. You could do a ponytail and slick it and just, you could still have, be that guy. I've done that too. Yeah, yeah I could, could still, still be that, that guy. guy with a ponytail. You right. can do all of it. He still exists. But, you know, the funny thing is, as I go into uh, casting offices, um, 
for the past, I don't know, however long, year now, and someone hasn't seen me, you know, they're always like, oh, wow, wow. <laughs> and it's favorable, it's a little shocking, but you know, it's, it's interesting because now they realize there's more to it, to it, than they f- first thought, right? You like you've got someone pigeonholed. We always compartmentalize and go, oh, that's that's who Karen is. Okay, yeah. right. That's who Dar is. Right, and um, it's just interesting. I didn't mean to do this. It just happened. It, it well, I had a rough summer two summers ago. I had back pain turned into back surgery in like twenty days. Oh no. Oh yeah, it was bad. Surgery went spectacularly well. Pain's gone. The, I had something they call foot drop, so it was literally ner- starting the beginning of nerve damage, all oh, gone. Mm-hmm. Two weeks later, I had diverticulitis, which I didn't even know what the hell it was. And, and basically, they don't know what it is. You get a little bit of irritation in, in your colon. They don't know what causes it, how it occurs, but I almost died from it. Yeah, not good. And that got my attention. That got my attention. I didn't like think, oh my God, I almost died and make a big thing out of it. My mother grew up, I grew up with my mother who's an ER nurse for 30 years, an ICU for another two or three years on top of that. And then she worked in managed health care for, man, she worked in managed health care for almost another 30 years after that. Maybe 20 years or something like that. So I grew up in hospitals. I was always at the hospital, you know going to go see mom or I had to go drop her off at work or go pick her up as I started to drive and stuff. So I've always been around that type of thing. So I didn't like a lot of people, if they get a, you know, a sniffle or a cough, no disparagement, it's the end of the world. They're dying. Oh, do I have, you know, right? No, like, no, take it easy. You're going to be all right. (laughs) It made me indirectly think about things. And next thing I know, I've got long hair and I stopped shaving and I'm like, what am I doing? Yeah, but I could see you being just, you're now an author and, and you write, you know, science fiction or, or just, I, I think it works for you as well, so. I, th- I You know, it does or it doesn't. I, I think it does. I like it. You know, again, it's, I, I, you know what, one thing that's come out of this also is I started to look at, <laughs> this is going to sound maybe pretentious or crazy and that's okay. That's fine. Um, you are entitled to your opinions. Looking at my life as performance art, living my life as a performance art piece. Not just being weird, like, oh, I'm gonna grow my hair now, man. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm gonna dye my eyebrows, baby. Like, not, not that way. Not that there's anything wrong with that, because honestly, deep inside of me when I was a younger man, I really wanted to do that. I admired those folks, right? Um, Kate Bush is not a performance artist, but the first time I heard Kate Bush sing, mm-hmm. what is happening? Blew my mind. First time I heard Al Jarreau start scatting, I was like, you know, still one of my favorite albums of all time is, is Al Jarreau live and in, in, uh, it was in 77, Look to the Rainbow. Unbelievable. Uh, but I didn't do it. I was too scared for whatever reason, right? Um, but yeah, I think that concept's really kind of beautiful, and I like it, and it's working for me right now. So I'm going to keep doing more of that. So if the long hair and the beard and uh, has precipitated me looking at things from a bigger perspective or start talking more about a business aspect or transmedia or living my life as a performance artist, so be it. So be it, you know?
Yeah, it's just interesting that you're you're cast as somebody that is really not who you are, in in a lot of ways, but oh. but it, it seems to have it, it's very convincing. But I can yeah. tell that if just from being around you these these few hours, yeah. that's not who yeah. you are. But yeah. you you just really can't judge a book by its cover because I I would not have if I saw you on the street. I would thought you know maybe you grew up in, in in Missouri or Texas or I you know I would not have, yeah. have you know Midwestern guy or whatever yeah. from the south yeah. and and just to think that there's a whole another world inside of you and that just is very interesting because we don't know about people walking around right we and think that's we the know. most interesting thing that's where that's where all the juices that's where all the most beautiful stuff happens right I, I told you earlier. Uh, so my father-in-law was a really great man, right? And um, I did an interview that, uh, that, that uh, in, in San Antonio and the, and the girl afterwards, they wanted to do, well, can we do a Facebook Live? Sure, great, let's do it. And she says, uh, so, you know, that must be really hard to, you know, you know, those are big shoes to fill. I'm like, well, first of all, I'm not a black man. I'm not a Christian. I'm not a minister. I'm not a PhD in mathematics, all of which my father-in-law was. And uh, so he is, he is he and I, I am I, I'm me, right? Uh, second thing is, I'm not trying to fill his shoes, right? Mm-hmm. It's always over here, but I use it as motivation to keep going forward, right? On, on, his, uh, on his tombstone, he put down, I tried. That's what he wanted to have as his epitaph, I tried. I got it, <clears throat> excuse me, wow. right? Uh-huh. right? He certainly did try. And if he tried that hard, and, and what he and Uncle Martin did, in, in many ways, uh, allowed my folks to even get together, right? So in, in a very real way, I wouldn't even be here were it not for the Reverend and my mother-in-law Juanita and Uncle Martin and Aunt Coretta. I wouldn't even be here, right? So I'm not trying to fill their shoes. I'm just, I'm trying, man. I'm doing the best I can, keep moving forward. To, to do what I can do, right? In whatever whatever way that's possible. So, um, I mean, I started to say this earlier, kind of all over the place, but uh, I decided that uh, I was going to try to be, you know, contribute and help and be of service. So I met some people and uh, there's this thing called Southern California Ceasefire and it's for victims of gang violence. And we meet in uh, South, South Central uh, once a week and it's um, a place where everyone can get together and share their stories and their pain or what's going on or what kind of activity is going to be happening or if there's going to be a rally or if there's going to be a bake sale or a car wash or whatever <clears throat> and of course you know someone lost their son or their father or their daughter or their mother and uh, those are people with real problems. Yeah. These are people that are really suffering. They're not freaked out because, oh my God, did my audition go badly? Right. That puts things in perspective rapidly, right? You know, I said earlier that, um, so, I, so I, I go down there and I haven't been down there in, in a while, uh, but I do go and I do put myself in the middle of that. And it's an interesting mix because you've got the victims, families, and that's raw and that's palpable. And it's, um, I mean, I don't know what else to say about that. You've got LAPD there, plain clothes, and you've got a lot of undercover. You've got current gang members, and you've got 
old heads as they call them, who are out of the game uh, and are trying to do best. In fact, they're the ones who started the whole thing. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's, it's, it's really interesting and it really helps to keep perspective on things. And uh, you know, if this white boy can go down there and talk and, and just eat, just, I didn't say anything for six or seven months. I just, hmm. what am I gonna say? What am I gonna say? Who am I to say anything? I'm just gonna listen to you. It's all I can do. I can listen. And that's, as an actor, by the way, listening is everything, right? You, you, I mean, some of the, if you, something I hear frequently, I and mean, I've heard uh, Ben Kingsley say it, I've, I've heard Michael Caine say it, I've heard Helen Mirren say it, I've heard Meryl Streep say it, you know. Stillness, silence, and listening. If you focus on only those three things in your performance, everything will just start to blossom in ways that you could never have hoped for. Beautifully, you know, it brings everything to life. So I was like, well, you know, I'll sit down and I'm gonna listen, because that's all I can do. And by the way, what am I gonna say that would make me sound like the way I look? Like, I was short hair, clean shaven those days, right? I look like the man. You know, uh, so I just sat and listened, didn't say a word. <laughs> Funny. So Aunt Creta died, uh, um, oh, I can't remember the year right now, it's been, it's been a minute. Um, and I just had a surgery, I, I had a, a hip surgery and I was like, Doc, I've got to fly. He's like, you can't fly. I'm like, I have got to go to her funeral. I cannot not be there. And so, you know, we got me on the medication, et cetera, and made sure I had plenty of painkillers and stuff. And so I'm hobbling along in just incredible pain. And I've got this, you know, my suit and tie on and clean shaven, short hair. And I want you to know the cops thought I was FBI. <laughs> Uncle Martin's attorney from back in the day during the movement comes up and goes, so uh, are you CIA or are you FBI? I don't think we've met before, I swear to God. And I'm hopped up on Vicodin. Mm -hmm. The pain's out of this world, I'm exhausted. You know, and, and by the way, that funeral service lasted like, I, I had tapped out at the six hour mark. Oh, you know, Stevie Wonder was singing, and I had to get up and go back, and I sat back up in this upper room where all the cops were, and I was literally in a, a suit and tie <laughs> on the floor with my leg in the air and the cops are walking by me. I just remember looking up and there's guns and holsters and badges and bellies and hats. No one would have believed it. It was crazy, but uh, yeah, yeah. They thought I was a cop. So I'm walking into a situation like South, Southern California ceasefire with gang members, ex-gang members, old heads, LAPD, the victims, their families. Who the hell is that guy? What's that white boy doing here, right? And then as the word started to get out, oh, that's Abernathy's son, a husband. I was, you know, then, oh, okay, oh, yeah. And then they start talking to me, and they're like, and they find out, oh, well, I'm half Iranian, you know, my name is really Daryush. I knew you weren't white. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I, I think I'm white. Like, no, man, you ain't white, you ain't white. Yeah, and then like that broke down all the distrust and the fear and the barriers. Uh, really interesting, man. And, I, and similarly, when, when, uh, when I was going through tough times, you know, the people that helped and listened to me the most were the women. Why do you think that is? 
I'll throw it back on you. Why do you think? Why would, why would you think? And I'll answer the question. I don't mean to be coy. Um, why would a woman listen better, be able to, more equipped to handle it? Well, typically we're sort of more the nurturers and the caregivers, but that doesn't mean men can't be as well. And it doesn't mean that women always are. But that's typically been our role and that we're sort of taught to want to make sure everybody's okay. Um, I don't know. What, I realize that's an old stereotype, and I, I. So yeah, it is. I agree, and and I I never looked at it necessarily that way. Women, the female energy is, and here's a man talking about it. So forgive me, ladies. My perspective. You are much more in touch with your emotions than men are. Much more. From an early age, you look at a ten-year-old girl versus a ten-year-old boy. She's 10 going on 21, right? They understand social dynamics. They understand relationships, right? Those are critical things. By the way, they're critical in all aspects of life, and especially in this business, right? In any business, right? Relationships and walking emotional minefields. <laughs> we step in them quite often. Well, yeah. everyone does, right? <laughs> uh -huh. Well, women, though, you know, they think about, you know, you talk to women, why did she do that? And they start breaking down the psychological reasons and the emotional things that may be going on. You talk to guys like, oh, no. <laughs> you know, they don't, they don't, we, like, we don't care. <laughs> until men to get hit, get, get, it seems to be until we hit like our mid 40s. And then there, if there's any hope, it happens right around there. That you're gonna to start to understand. So I'd come and start talking about what was bothering me. My guy friend's like, Yeah, cool, what's on TV? Right? And I was like, Right. And I would just go back into, you know, open mouth breather, knuckle dragging, you know, let's drink a beer mode. Right? Now, if I talked to a girlfriend, she'd lean into me, you know, Oh, wow. And I'm like, Shit, she's listening to me. <laughs> right? Like, Wow. Oh my God, that must have been terrible. Or, oh wow, you're so brave to do that. Or whatever it was, right? And just in listening and being empathetic, which that feminine energy has in a more beautiful way than men, men do. Even though I sat here and talked about my father-in-law and Martin, you know, who certainly had it, but it was still masculine. You know, there's just a beautiful thing there. So anyway, because of that, I decided I was going to go down to the Downtown Women's Center uh, in LA. <laughs> and similarly, that didn't work out so well either because I, I kind of got pulled aside. And uh, well, I didn't get pulled aside, but I noticed that the women were like, there was, they just, there was this visceral stay away from me thing. Sure. Yeah. And I was a little bit older than, it seemed to be like a lot of younger kids were there and stuff. But, um, yeah. Happens. It and happens. it's understandable. Sure. They've I think been it's through the ringer. Yeah. They've been through the ringer. I was like, okay, well, that's not the way I'm going to be able to serve that situation. I got to find another way. So, what should actors know before they get into acting? Wow. Uh, if there's anything else you can do, think of yourself doing. If there's anything else that really interests you, you should really think about looking at that more. Because Acting is extremely challenging and very difficult to make a living at. And um, it's not for the timid. It's just not. 
And, uh, you know, there's no need to suffer needlessly if you don't have a, a long-term vision in, in your mind as to what you want and where you're going with it and how you're going to achieve that, you know. And, of course, everything changes. But if there's anything else you'd rather do, you should think about rather doing that. Um, if you can't, if you are like me who tried and, it, you know, <laughs> here I am, then you have to play the long game. And it's not going to be, well, I'm going to give it five months or I'm going to give it two years. No, 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 no. You may get lucky, you know. Some people, I've been around quite a few people who've got a break and they're off to the races. God bless them. That's great. They're the outlier. They're the anomaly. That's not, that That just doesn't happen very often. You know, there's uh, something... Uh, uh, I saw, I don't know if, who put it out, but the Screen Actors Guild got information. Let's just say uh, uh, collectively now SAG-AFTRA has got, I don't know, 200,000 members. Uh, uh, out of those 200,000 members, um, only a certain number are working actors and actresses, right? And what they deem, what the union deems a working actor is anyone who makes more than $5,000 a year from acting jobs. Wow. $5,000 a year, hmm. which is why I always say, if there's anything else you can think of doing, go do it, man, because this is what you're walking into, right? So that's 5% of a 200,000 population of a, of a union are working, and working means making more than $5,000. Now, those that are working and making more than $5,000, that's an even smaller subset. So I think you get down to like 1%. Hmm. Wow. It's tough. It's really tough. So I think it would behoove anyone to get in this business, especially an actor, to realize that you're in a business, that those numbers are the actual reality of what's happening, the on the boots, on the ground, where the rubber meets the road of this business, and that I just said business. And sorry, I know I keep saying this throughout this interview, it would really make sense to start to learn how to be successful in business. You said timid earlier. That's interesting. What, what's a timid actor versus a non-timid actor? A timid actor? Mm -hmm. Did I say that? I thought you did maybe about being timid about the business. Not, not so much about the craft, I think. It's uh, hmm, interesting. I don't know. A timid act. Well, I mean, you know, timid actor. You're not going to do well if you're always fearful, I don't think. I mean, you don't have to be like super you know, gregarious, outgoing, you can introverted. There are a lot of wonderful actors that are completely introverted and really shy. And then you put a camera on them and it's a whole different thing. Or you put them on stage and, geez, where, who is that? And people just get blown away and then when it's off, they're just kind of go right back into that shell. I don't know how, how folks like that make it. I think, I really don't, I don't know how because, you know, the business part of any, you know, business is, is not, you know, warm and fuzzy and feel good. Um, however, when you see something, a transformation like that, I know it's necessarily attractive and it definitely catches attention. I don't know that that's, I mean, it's, it's not, a, it's not a, a successful strategy. You know, it's one of those outlier things again. Um, what do you think happened to you in life that prepared you for being able to take rejection? And, and some of the, the not-so-warm-and-fuzzy things that happen in this business? Um, well, I think, you know, I told you that I, I started 
mowing lawns as a young guy and and then had you know a variety of different businesses and uh so you know the lifeblood of any business is sales nothing happens until the sale occurs nothing right um so in sales you know you, you're going to get rejection especially in the beginning I was, I was horrible god i was bad and just like an auditioning you know bad audition really is a sales job it really is and um uh you know, I just wanted to do this so badly from such a deep place. And then I began to enjoy it and love it more and more and more that, you know, that fueled my fire. So the rejections, yeah, they suck, they hurt, they frustrate, they confound, they upset, they confuse, they don't make any sense all at the same time and separately and, you know, not at all. And, you know, like I said, playing the long game, you just got to keep going, right? Um, and then, you know, I, I told you my background and, uh, we, we did, we moved a lot, you know, I don't, I don't know why I never got a straight answer out of my father, but I think he kind of got scared when he saw these four boys and how much we ate. And, uh, we ate a lot of food. <laughs> I remember one time, you know, it was gro the, the grocery day was on, on Saturday and, and I went with my mother to help her buy the groceries. And this was in the seventies. And the grocery bill came out to like two hundred and fifty dollars in nineteen seventy dollars. Wow! Wow! And she got home, and the old man saw the the receipt, and <laughs> he lost his mind. Damn it! What are you eating so much for? For and she's like, well, they're growing; they need to eat. And he just like, and he know you know he 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 was upset but you know he was like i think he was that was his kind of battle cry to himself to kind of summon up you know his his blood and get it going he needs to start going out and get another job and make more money and that's what he did to his credit that's what he did to his credit but um stuff like that that all informs you see that you know there are ups and downs you're going to get no's more than you're going to get yeses but you learn a lot in those no's you really do have you worked more in television or film Television, hands down, yeah. Why do you think some actors work more on television than film? Um, I don't know that I have the answer to that. I don't know. It, it you know, it, it's so challenging. It's a tough business. You know, the the whole. Uh, there was an interview with Matt Damon, uh, uh, Sam Jones's show. I can't off camera, and he said, you know, the, the business is designed to keep you out. It's the truth, right? It's very challenging, it's very hard to get in. So if you start working in television and, and that's, you know, you dance with who brung you, you know, if that's what it is. If, if it's a mixture of both, dance with who brung you, right? Do them, do them both, you know? It, it always amazes me where folks, uh, actors, people, whatever, think that like you can choose film and television. Well, I'm only going to do film. I'm only going to do television. I don't do television, right? I don't do commercials. Right, that's like that's bananas. You 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 got to keep working. You got to keep developing your skill, working those muscles out, so to speak, metaphorically. And you know, whatever happens, happens. You know, and I don't know that any actor goes on to say, "Well, we're making a film, or we're just doing a TV show." Yeah, I've had those conversations too, but you still got a job to do, and uh, one's not better than the other. Is there a different energy on a film set versus TV or no? It's all the same in, in some sense. In my experience, it, I mean, yeah, it's the same. 
Yeah. You know, I've done. Yeah, I mean, I've done both, you know, I don't know. I've heard people romanticize it and say, you know, films are different because X, Y and Z. Maybe. Yeah. You know, maybe you're making a film. You're maybe a little bit, you know, it's a little more precious because you still got to make your day, you know, and, and you still got to deliver and, you know, you still got X, Y and Z breathing down your neck. Uh, but that thing is going to be around. It's just it's viewed through a different lens, so to speak. But that's really splitting the atom. In my in my opinion, wow. yeah, it's it's really the same animal, you know. If you start looking at well, this is just a TV show, just a TV show. Like it's easy to make a TV show and get it on the air. Well, you said earlier about how commercials were going away and yeah. buyouts and different yeah. things. Yeah. I'm seeing a lot of names doing commercials, right? And so. I just find that interesting. Is that because now they want sort of that person to become a face of the brand? Uh, we have a friend <clears throat> who uh, is, we'll start saying names, but um, you would recognize him and know him right away. And um, he's done commercials and doesn't need to, but you know, why wouldn't you, right? The payday is great when you've got a name and you're a celebrity and you know an entity. There's there's a brand there and you know you can do a commercial. Well, we're going to speak general terms. If I were you know Mr. Movie Star or Mrs. Movie Star and cereal brand X comes up and says, Hey, you know we'd love you to be you know our spokesperson or to do a series of them for us and here you go. Here's, you know, $3 million. Why are you going to turn that down? Right? Because someone's going to call you a sellout or a, or a worse word. <laughs> right? I mean, I guess back, back, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you could say that. And there was a different time, a different era. And okay, fine. But now, why not? That's as much money as you make for, you know, you go and you shoot a commercial, you like take a day and you shoot, or, or three days a week and you shoot, you know, five, six spots. Here you go. There's $3 million. Yeah. I always find the word sellout is banding around by people that probably haven't worked in a little bit. That, that just, it, it's such a baffling term to me. Who wouldn't? I mean, it beats uh, the alternative. I've said this five times. I'll say it again. Let's be honest. We're all sellouts. Sure. Right? I always say jokingly, we're all a whore for the dollar. We're all whores. What's our price? Right? Yeah. All right. So, and, and that's fine. If you think that's selling out, doing commercials, you know, toothpaste, dog food, hair spray, whatever, okay, fine. But, you know, you, you don't know what's going on in the other person's life or what the other person's sensibilities or, or, or values or beliefs are or anything. So, you know, and I don't think anybody got in this business just to do a commercial. Or to only do passion projects that don't pay. I mean, it's great. That goes back into that narrative that you said or you were speaking about earlier um, about how artists are supposed to suffer. Man, everybody suffers in life. Artists don't have like a, they don't have a, a, a I can't think of the word. They don't own that. Right. Everybody suffers. And you don't have to suffer needlessly, right? You're going you're gonna to get, no, you know, knows that's suffering. Constant rejections, right? 
doing a, a bad audition, having a, you know, being on set and then not doing that great a job, X, Y, and Z, and your part gets whittled down to, you know, two words or just a glance over his shoulder or something. Stuff happens, but you know you don't have to sit there and just you know make things. Oh well, you know, I'm doing it more for the uh, you know, speaking to my soul. That's all great. I'm being facetious, but yeah, let us speak to your soul. But don't you know cut your nose off to spite your face in the process. Right. Yeah. No. I, I mean, everybody suffers. Wealthy suffer. Poor. Everybody has their own. It's just different sets of problems, different pressures. That's it. And so it's all subjective. Yeah. Yeah. Pain is pain, man. If it hurts, if someone's in pain, mm -hmm. who, who the hell are you to say that it shouldn't hurt or it doesn't hurt that badly? What's a character you haven't played yet that you'd like to? Not, not so much the show, but a, a, a stereotype of, of, of a composite that you would like. You, you know, I want to I I do this this time. I want to do something that's really challenging in that sense. Cause, if one gets the same roles over yeah. and over again, doesn't mean you can't still yeah. be creative within that. Yeah. But just something that like is totally opposite that you really want to try. Uh, hmm. Interesting. Uh, you know, the, the some, I don't know. I was talking about this with a young actor a couple of weeks ago, and he was wrestling with you know not wanting to play a gay character. Well, why not? Right. I would like. I would do that in a heartbeat, right? Because I, you know, I, everyone has this kind of stereotype. I say everyone, but it's not accurate that a gay man is effeminate and speaks with a lisp, perhaps, or is always banding his hands around like this or whatever kind of thing they might think. And I just think it would be, like I was telling him, I think, how much more interesting would it be if you played yourself you just necessarily happen to be gay that's true yeah. I mean right so much more interesting right and then you're opening space up for the character to breathe and the audience to come in and look at that a little differently right and then within the gay community there's very masculine there's bears and I mean we're really getting technical but I grew up in San Francisco so <laughs> You know, but there's very, and just as with lesbians, there's lipstick lesbians. It doesn't have to be like one type. See, you know. Trans, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the yeah. trans community was in the Bay Area yeah. a long time ago. Yeah. And, um, yeah. I, I have, we have a friend who uh, has transitioned. She used to be a man. And she's a champion race car driver. Oh, wow. Champion. Hmm. And transitioned. And I want you to know the hell that she has gone through since that occurred. Oh. Through NASCAR, through sponsors, through fellow drivers, you know, because they just can't wrap their head around that thing yeah. that occurred and who the person is. Well, it's like, no, man, this is who this person was the whole time. That. Is not who the person was, right? Wow. And uh, th that would be really interesting. That would be really interesting. She has the courage of, she's a lion heart. I'm telling you, mm -hmm. man, trans, the trans people I know in my life are some of the bravest, most courageous, empathetic people I've ever met. You sit down and talk to someone who's gone through transitioning, 
from one gender to another. Sure. I mean, my God, what must that experience be like? You know. And their their family's reaction to it, and what do they still, you know, and just what if they're abandoned and just having to. That happens. That happens more often than it doesn't. That happens more often than it doesn't. My, you know, in our family, uh, my first brother came out, uh, sent a shockwave through the family, and I watched my father start acting differently, and I watched my mother start acting differently, and then I, I don't know, it was like a year or two years later, the second one came out, and like everything went fakakta with my folks. You know, they just like up was down and left was right and straight ahead was backwards, right? And, um, and they came around uh, to their credit, but it was a bumpy road. It was a real bumpy road. You know, my father grew up in Iran and in, in, in Iran, you know, there's a lot of homophobia, which is weird because it, when you're in Iran, you'll see men holding hands. Oh. When I see my father, I kiss him. Sure, sure. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. Sometimes on the lips, on the cheek for sure, right? Give him a hug every time, right? And I, I remember watching my, you know, my American friends and stuff. They just, did you just kiss your dad, man? Yeah, why? Yeah. And they wouldn't say another word. And I didn't think about it until you know, years, years later. Actually, when my brothers came out that I realized, like, what was going on. I was like, God, this shit goes so deep. Um, in Iran, it was not uncommon to see soldiers in uniform you know, on an off day, but still in their uniform, they're holding hands walking down the street and they're both straight, hmm. both straight. But there's just, you know, that cultural, you know, they're friends, they're brothers, you know. It wasn't uh, necessarily a homosexual thing. In fact, if it were, things would not have gone well for them. Right. Right. And uh, that's another conversation. But uh, yeah. I, anyway, to answer your question, yeah, I think that would be interesting. Actually, trans would be really interesting. I, I think I'd make a, sh- a frightening woman. Well, I don't know. We'd have to get rid of the beard. We'd have to get know. rid of the beard. Yeah. We could. You think? With those eyes? Yeah, we could play uh, them up. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Eyelashes like and eyes? Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. yeah. Nice Would try. you date me? I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know about that either. <laughs> There's the litmus test. Well, maybe you're not. Maybe you're not my target market, my avatar. He's not your Lisa. He's not my Lisa. You are not my Lisa, and we are not going to have two little girls and a pit bull. An aggressive pit bull. An aggressive pit bull. Summery flowing. And I will not be wearing pastel colors around you. Do you know how to cry on cue? Yeah. How do you do it? I pinch myself in the testicles really hard. Okay. It works every time. No. Uh, <laughs> so I couldn't help myself. That answer. All I right. couldn't help myself. You know, it's not it on. It's it's yeah. It, it you know on cue sounds so like. Und now we cry, yeah. Und now we laugh. Und now we dance. You know. Like sprockets. Yeah, sprockets. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. the ridiculousness of that skit. That was so great. But. Um, uh, there's so much more that goes into it. You know, no one just go, you cry on cue. It sounds bananas. Okay, cry. But it is that too. It is that too. But there's, you know, there's the whole dynamic of the story and the emotional arc of, of the character and what's happening in the given moment and the characters in the scene and what's preceded it. And, you know, uh, 
that that help inform the whole thing. Um, and ironically, you know, I I was in a scene and I'm crying and, and I was laughing and just making jokes the whole time in between takes. And uh, I forget who it was right now. It was the first AD or somebody came up and started being the director, which that's so fun when that happens. <laughs> um, yeah. And I came up and said something like, man, don't you, don't you, like, you know, want to keep it together? Not too much. I'm like, I didn't know you were directing today. I'm sorry. Hang on. And I called the director over and like, you know, just made it, I just made fun of it but just called it out and had fun with it. I wasn't trying to create his big scene and I knew where he was coming from and we were, we were all cool. I still, I like the guy a lot, but that was part of my process, right? Because in my mind now crying and laughing, it's the flip side of the same coin. Hmm. Right? That's interesting. Yeah. Hmm. It's the same coin. It's the flip side. You're laughing here. You're crying there. So, I mean, I don't, I don't analyze everything so intently, but for me, I got to have fun and I got to do what I'm doing. I walk around trying to be heavy and everything else during the take or throughout the day because I know that, you know, around four o'clock we're going to shoot that scene and uh, scene 52 is just, it's, you know, it's the emotional apex of that character. You're going to get there and you're just going to, you know, it won't go well for you. It won't, me, I'm speaking for myself. It won't go well. I've done it before. But do you think it's okay that some actors have their own process and that they yes. maybe need to be more removed? Sure. And because I know some there's sure. like this, oh, well, they they won't come to they're too. But maybe that's just their process. Yeah. There, well, there's like this weird stigma, I think. Yeah. Well, all that happens. That's for sure. That's happened. You know, someone won't come to set, or you know, someone's got earphones in, they're listening to whatever they're listening to, or uh, someone won't even talk to you, right? That's Hollywood in general. That happens to you too. <laughs> That's going to the supermarket, yeah. <laughs> it was just me. Um, but uh, yeah, you got to respect the person's process. It's just, you you know, you, when you start saying that, the times that that has happened, like so-and-so won't come to set, it's not about their process. It's uh, more about, yeah, it's more about something else. Something else. Yeah. 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 Well, I guess too, it could depend on the level that that person's at and what they're going through and maybe are they going to be hit up for, you know, I mean, it's, it's, exactly. yeah, exactly. I guess I can understand. There's a lot, that. right. There's a whole lot going on. And, and, you know, every time you start a new job or you, you know, if it's day one of, of the job and you're throughout the whole process, you know, it's a new job, it's a new company, it's a new production. Everyone's got to get to know each other. Right. A friend of mine just uh, started doing a movie and the first day was a little bumpy. The second day was really bumpy. Oh. And so much so he's like, oh, my God, if this whole thing's going to be like this. And uh, he goes, I'm just going to go home and have a drink and relax and, you know, breathe and get up and see what tomorrow brings me. And sure enough, smooth sailing. Mm. It was just that little bumpy rough patch. So. You know, that's another one of those things that, that you get to experience in this business that you may not necessarily in other businesses. You know, usually it's you going to, you know, in the, in the, the, the real world, so to speak, or in another industry, you're the new person, you go to your job, everyone else has been there, the building's been there, the dynamics at play, the politics are at play, you have to learn how to fit in. In our industry, everything's new. The politics haven't been established necessarily, or each department has their own politics. And then all the politics from all the different departments come together. 
right? That's a great point. It's going to get bumpy. Yeah, it's going to get messy. True. There are going to be some storms. There are going to be some wind, windy days. There are going to be some really hot, dry days. You just got to keep breathing, baby. Just keep going through it, you know? Right, and typically people are usually on their best behavior like the first few days of something. You would hope. You, one would hope. Hello, lovely to meet you, Karen. <laughs> Pretty much. My name is Dar. <laughs> Pretty much, and everyone's, you know, upbeat and they're working and they're great. Yeah. But then, yeah, you know, people are people and everybody has an ego and everybody gets tweaked over certain things and it's just... It's, just it's usually about happen. day three or four, someone has some bad chili and the crew member farts in the middle of your take. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully they're, they're able kidding, to uh, some, get some, some Pepto-Bismol. Exactly. But no, you, 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 things start to happen. Sure. Someone says something really hilarious, breaks the ice, the tension, then the conversation starts to flow. Someone does something that they shouldn't have done. Oh, no. You know, the judgment and the criticisms right. come out. And all the clicks and, yeah, the mm -hmm. passive-aggressive behavior. And then <laughs> someone comes in, the, you know, a good producer comes in and they're a psychologist and, you know, they're a negotiator. And if they're not, they learn really quickly. They got to brush up on that. They come in and mend that before it gets too messy, you know, because there's a lot riding on this. Yeah, it's weird when you can kind of feel there's like an un, there's unspoken clicks. Oh, yeah. And do you violate that by trying to join the click? Or no, does that like break sort of the social mores? Or I don't know if that's the right Well, I have a, a unique perspective because I moved so much. I was always the new guy. And I always felt that. I always I had to learn how to navigate that right away. And there is a time when it's okay to insert yourself into that energy and start talking and mingling with it. And there's a time where it's like, Now's not the time, right? And you just don't want it to to let the fear of of should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I, should right? Just trust your instinct, your gut, and you'll know when the right time is. Because look, you're all there to create something together, and that's cool if that's their click. And you know, you don't fit that click, you don't fit that click. Doesn't mean you still can't be friendly. That's true. Doesn't mean you still can't say hi and right. respect their space, and they respect yours. I saw this nice quote and it said something like, oh, and I'm butchering it, but just like saying hi to someone that you don't like is just being an adult. Pretty much. You know, and I, I was like, you know, that there is a lot of truth in that. Even if you have to kind of force it and you're like, yeah, hey, and you're like, cool, now they're over there, that's great. But it's just being sort of like, hey, I'm over here. I respect the fact that you're there. Doesn't mean we have to be friends, but I'm just going to say hi. That's all it is. I know. And so I thought that was interesting. So simple, right? Yeah. So simple, I know. Yeah, sometimes uh, things in this business, because it's a more emotional you know, nature, because you're creating art and emotions are heightened because you're telling this story, that can kind of bleed over into the real life, you know, because there's the manufactured thing through the lens that we're creating, and then that, some of that might bleed off into the real life and people start to act stupid. And it's like, wait a minute, look, all right, so-and-so's however they are. Doesn't mean you can't just still be pleasant and get through your day, all right? Right. right. You, don't, you don't have to turn into, it doesn't have to turn into a catty thing or, you know, this macho thing or this aggressive thing. It doesn't have to be that. Yeah. Yeah. You think it comes from maybe being more of the outcast? Then you then you do you, you realize you don't want to leave people out. Yeah, you you're like you know what I don't I'll say hi even though 
this isn't really my kind of person, but I'll say hi and I, I, I yeah, wanting to I'm always people. aware of that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I'm always aware of that. It, but you know, it's part of me, me growing up. You know, when you're the outsider, you know, you know what that's like. Mm -hmm. Can be a lonely, weird, you know, uncomfortable place. So I always make an effort to go and talk to. When I see that person, I just go over and test the water, see what's going on. And usually, sometimes all you have to do is listen. Just listen. You know, it's amazing what happens when someone feels like they're being heard. You can just like watch them blossom right in front of you. I, you know, I, here's an interesting story. I, I just thought of it. I wanted to get a day job. This was, I don't know, 20 some odd years ago. And, uh, and I'd had a business with my folks. It was a small print and copy shop. I knew nothing about it, but um, I took all the failures of my other businesses and, and did the opposite of that and did really well with it and were able to uh, raise the business up quite a bit, drive, you know, make it much more profitable, and my folks were able to sell it off and retire. Um, and so I thought, well, you know, I'll go see about this copier job. So I went to this company, I shall remain nameless, and for an interview, and I walked in, she goes, oh, just fill out the application and, you know, Mr. X will see you shortly. And I was like, oh, no, that's okay. I'm not, I don't fill out the application. I've already got my, you know, CV with me, my whatever. She just kind of looked at me, sat down, waited, and I got a chance to go and sat down with Mr. X, really nice man. <clears throat> and uh, it was, the job was just, it was terrible. They're going to give me the worst, I knew what they're going to do. They're going to be the worst territory, and it's going to be business, to, you know, business to business sales. And um, I'm going to try to get them to buy copiers from this company. And uh, the, the pay was going to be nothing. There wasn't going to be a car allowance or cell phone allowance or laptop allowance or insurance or any, you know, benefits or medical or dental or anything. And I was like, that, you know, I get it. I know the drill, but I'll show my worth and, you know, things will change. Well, uh, we'd done this listening exercise in an acting class I was doing at the time. And... And it was really mind-blowing when we did it. For me, it was, because uh, uh, I, I had an experience with the actress that I was working with that, that night, and uh, I just watched this whole shift occur in her. I didn't say anything. She was just talking, and I was listening with 100% focus, which, by the way, just doing that, it's, almost, it's exhausting the first time you do it. But it was also really interesting and liberating. And so I thought, I'm going to try that today. So I'm sitting in this interview, and uh, we, we say a few pleasantries back and forth. And he says, well, tell me about yourself. I go, well, you know, there's a lot I could say about myself, but, you know, I would really like to hear, like, what your biggest challenges are, who's been great at this job, who's not been great at this job. Anything that you could share with that would be really helpful to me. Um, and uh, I don't want to waste your time and... and, and uh, I certainly wouldn't dream of wasting your time. I think that was like the, the totality of what I said. And then I didn't say another word for 45 minutes. And he just started to talk. And it was a little bit like, you know, I could see in his mind like, what the hell is this? Right? <laughs> who is this man? Yeah, who is this guy, right? Which, which, you know, it's actually like a really smart move. I wasn't trying to be smart or anything or saying I'm necessarily smart. But uh, anyway... Uh, all I did for the next 45 minutes was like, mm -hmm. oh, really? Wow. But I was actively listening. There are things you can do, I won't get into it here, that you, you train yourself to actively listen. 
and eye contact, total focus, and I'm literally hearing everything you're saying. And I did that for 45 minutes with this guy, and he just kept opening up more and more, and smile came across his face about five minutes in, and it wouldn't leave. 20 minutes in, he's telling me funny stories and anecdotes about his family and stuff, and it just kept on going. And about the 45-minute mark, I remember that well, he goes, you know what, man? I'm not going to give you this position. I can't, this, this position, man, you're better than this. I can't do that to you. And oh, wow. that broke me for a second. I didn't speak, but I was like, what did he just say? And I went right back to listen to him. He goes, listen, man, th this, is the worst, this is the worst position. I'll tell you what, I want you to come and meet the president of the company. Come, he's got to meet you. Hang on one second. And he got up to leave, and I was like, oh, my God, what's going on? <laughs> and he goes down, he gets the president, and he calls me. We walk down to the president's office and introduce him to the guy. And the guy's like, oh, I hear great things about you. Yeah, we'd love to have you on board. And uh, I've given him full, uh, full authority to give you, you know, uh, the, this route and da-da-da, this district, this territory. I'm like, okay, well, great, nice to meet you. And they sat me down. They offered me this, like, really great job. I mean, the first thing was like a $30,000 a year job. And I ended up, they offered me, like, I want to say 85000 a year plus uh, bonuses and commission, which would end up being, I don't know, like around one hundred and fifty a year, maybe more. This is, you know, 20 some odd years ago with a car, with insurance, with a cell phone, with a laptop, full benefits right out of the gate in one of their best territories. Did you take it? No. <laughs> no. Two, and there's two reasons why. Number one, I was stunned. I couldn't believe that just happened. Like, I was just doing this acting, listening exercise that this is wow and i was just kind of tripping because of what had happened with the actress and i when we were doing this exercise the night before both of us fully aware of what was going on but she couldn't help it she the same thing that happened to her on a much more personal uh level happened in the room with that gentleman with mr x and uh i just wow and then i thought about it, i was like i can't do that that's like a that's a job job, man. What am I going to I can't go do this. I can't take time off and work. I can't go to audition in the middle of the day when they're, I can't do that. And so I, you know, respectfully decline. He goes, don't listen. I, you're a winner. You're on your <laughs> I didn't say anything. I just listened to the man. Did you ever think about that job uh, if, if there were a few bumpy times and say, I should have taken it, or were you even glad when there were bumpy times? I'm glad I never, because that's a full committed career. It, pretty it, much. Well, yeah, it is, yeah. yeah. There, he was like, listen, you, you, you'd have my job. I'm kind of glad. He said, you'd have my job in, in six months if you were here. I can see it in your eyes. I'm like, what is this guy talking about? <laughs> uh, I did, I, you know, I probably a mixture of both, back and forth. You know, when I was like, oh, my God. But ironically, when I decided not to take that job, uh, I, I just kind of went on a tear and started working back to back to back to back to back. And, uh, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, that would have been nice in a lot of ways. I remember there was, a, the, the, you know, the class I was in that occurred. I, I mentioned to the guy who was teaching the class about that. And he's a, just a real, like, wrestling with his own demons. I'll, that's all I'll say. Wasn't always the most pleasant cat.
which was one of the reasons I, I like I can't be with this guy. And it was kind of a bittersweet because I like, this exercise that we had done. I thought this is so amazing. However, you know the personality leaves so much to be desired. I don't want to be around that anymore. So, uh, but I this this I'm getting ahead of myself. So I told the guy what had happened in this you know job interview like four or five days before, and he looks at me and goes, "Don't do that. Stay in this business. You stay here. Keep doing this." And I was like the nicest thing he'd ever said. And I was like, "Where first of all, where the hell did that come from? Thank you, but where the hell did that come from?" I was like, I don't know. It was interesting. Interesting. It's interesting when you have someone that doesn't have to be nice to you and they end up giving you a compliment. I think it's probably more I, I, trustworthy. Well, yeah, it is. You're right. But I, I think that guy should be nice because he's <laughs> taking money from people to provide a service and behaving opposite of that. Yeah. Sure. I'm not that guy. I'm not. I hear you. I, I can't you. be around that that I can't be around that guy or that gal. Do you think all actors should have acting classes or can they take breaks? Sure, of course take breaks. Again, your, your way is your way. You don't want to get stuck in taking class, class fill. Oh, I got to take another class. I just got to go take this class now and then everything will be great. You learn more. Here, I'm going to say something that's going to upset some acting teachers. Maybe not. The, one, the ones of, of substance will understand this. I would recommend that an actor, in lieu of paying, I don't even know how much acting classes cost these days, but let's let's say it's you know, five six hundred dollars a month, something like that, right? Take that money, and go invest it in a filmmaker that's got a project that you like, or create one for yourself, and go shoot a short or go shoot a full length, invest in their film, and go learn on set. There's no acting class like that. Now, it's not going to be the best thing in the world, of course, messy, everything else, but that's how you get better. That's how you get better. There's nothing like seeing yourself, seeing your work, and seeing the finished product to teach you what you need to learn. You know, I know a lot of actors, oh, I can't watch dailies, I can't see myself. Man, I'd love to see them. I don't get a chance to see them enough. All right? I've gotten past the point, of, oh, God, I look like X, Y, or Z. Yeah, well, I look how I look, whatever, right? If I can see the performance in the monitor, if I can see it, then that's going to help. Because if you know, as an actor, you can hear, you can see in the director's eyes, they're not getting what they want, or something's happening, or you're doing something with your your ear, you know, or you're you're sitting a certain way, or whatever, right? Uh, if I can hear it and see it, I can remedy it. You don't even have to give me a direction. So, uh, but anyway, I would say do that. Take your money, go invest in a film, you know. Don't expect to ever see it again, but you might get more out of that than you get out of a month of acting class. And you're working, and you have finished tape when it's all done. Boom, that just happened. (laughs) Well, how can you tell when an acting class isn't for you? Maybe it's not a bad teacher or a bad When it becomes psychotherapy. Ah. When it becomes lording themselves over you, which happens quite frequently. I can't tell you how many acting classes I've seen around town where the, the, the teacher's got their chair positioned under, literally under a light, maybe elevated a little bit, you know, and all under the guise of, well, you know, I want to be able to see you and be able to talk to everybody and see them. Cool story, bro. Cool story. 
right? You could easily do that by standing up and walking around too, you know? You don't have to keep, put yourself on an elevated position because psychologically there's a lot going on when that happens. Hmm. It's like watching someone on stage, you know? The great sun god is talking to us. We must listen now, you know? And that happens happens a lot. But yeah, when anytime you get into a class and they start playing psychotherapy with you, like the great there's a great show on TV right now, Barry on HBO, genius. Henry Winkler won his Emmy for playing the conglomeration of all bad acting teachers and of course some good acting teacher um, in balled up in one with his character. And uh sorry about that. And uh um uh, you know he it's it's hilarious to watch that, but you know, uh, anytime someone starts to try to break you down psychologically or emotionally, you're on a slippery slope. There, that's not a trained professional. That's not a trained mental health professional. And P.S. A lot of them are ex actors, or still wanna be actors, or failed actors, and this is what they do now. And that's fine, man. I don't begrudge any of that. Just don't start becoming something you're not. If you see that happening in a class, just walk out. Just get up and walk out. Yeah. Just keep it about the work that's being done. I just said the work. That used to drive me nuts. But just keep it about the words on the page, the place, location, the characters. Keep it about that. You've got mental blocks. You've got emotional blocks. That's on you, baby. Work it out. But for an acting teacher to come in and like, what is it that your mother didn't do to you? And those, how many conversations have I heard like that? Oh, yeah. oh my God. What are you doing? You know? Just, I've seen him leave some actors and actresses just wrecked yeah. afterwards. Not cool. Dangerous, in fact. Yeah, I've seen teachers and other people break people down too in front of the class. Oh, Not just yeah. acting teachers, but another. There was one scenario I won't name what it is, but I felt horrible for the woman. And it was this group thing where they ganged up on her and told her what she should do. And and and. But I think that's similar that can happen in these acting classes. It's it's like we talked about a little mentality. bit mob, mob that mob mentality. And you know, here we go again. I, I've never talked about this on camera, but you guys have got an exclusive with this. But this going through this cult and then getting, you know, myself, you know, working through that and healing myself of it, the coming out of that, it's a lot of work, man. And so, you know, I had to find out what had happened to me. And that's the, you literally just described the dynamic at play within that. Group think, you know, emotional manipulation, controlling the words, the milieu, as they say, right? Uh, it's, it's a slippery slope. You know, it's a slippery slope. So you always have to watch out for that. And, you know, when you're young and energetic and maybe not so worldly and maybe a little naive, and God knows I was. God knows I was. Yeah, clearly I was. Well, there's wanting to be accepted, too. That's right. You could be incredibly worldly, and not, but there's also this, you know, everybody has a need to be accepted. That's so. right. You know, it's been said, uh, you know, in, in, in studying all these really well-known psychologists and, and psychology and linguists and stuff like that, if you break down the two issues that are at the core of every being, everything breaks down to two issues, right? Oh, I got my mother issues and I got my daddy issues and oh, you know, alcohol and you know, the X, Y, and Z. But it all boils down to two things. Number one, 
I'm not lovable. And number two is I'm not worthy slash good enough. So I'm not good enough, worthy, and I'm not lovable. That's the core of everything. And all of us have it. And all of us wrestle with it. Yeah. Be your own friend. Be nice to yourself. Give yourself a break. Jesus. (laughs) Dr. Wayne Dwyer. Dr. Dar Dixon. I remember that. Yeah, pulling your own strings. Yeah, uh yeah. Yeah, Wayne Dwyer. Amazing. Yeah. Didn't mean to get preachy, but it's the truth. It is. I know it it may sound uh, however it may sound, but, you know, that's the reality. I think to certain people, they haven't experienced certain things yet. My, my thing is I've seen people either experience things early, I've said this before, but either early in life that really shapes them, that's traumatic, or they get it later. Because no one, no one ever has a totally smooth ride, I don't think. But I, I think the ones that have it first, those first initial things, I think it can be traumatic, but can also help you later on. Whereas the ones that haven't had it yet, and then it happens later, I think that actually might be more detrimental. You're talking about in childhood? Yeah, just in terms of... Rough childhoods frequently, mm-hmm. well, it, I say frequently, but there are a lot of really successful people financially, socially, uh, spiritually, you name it, across the board, physically, etc. cetera. Uh, Western definition of success, Eastern definition of success, whatever it may be for you, uh, who had horrible childhoods. Horrible. And they use that as fuel to propel them, right? Because nothing in and of itself has any meaning except the meaning we give to it. Going back to that again, right? And I know other people who had horrible childhoods, unspeakable, and they just won't let themselves get beyond that meaning they've given to it. That's true. Right? I must not be lovable. I must not be good enough, right? The others are just like, I don't even know if they look at it that way. I don't even know if they look at it that way, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I sometimes used to, I used to think, I used to be like, I wouldn't wish, but I was like, maybe if I had a really rough childhood, like really rougher, I would have been really successful. Hmm. How crazy is that? Every, you know, everybody has something. I've had that thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, some people, they get it early and maybe not so much later. I don't know, that's just my theory. Doesn't mean it's, and other people, I think it happens later. I think that part might be tougher, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, it, it will happen, though. No one, no one gets out yeah. of this life unscathed. Right? No. I mean, you said Buddhism, right? What's the first noble truth? Life is suffering. Far wiser person than me. If that's what they're saying, I should probably listen to it. You sure. Know? Yeah. Doesn't mean that's what it is, but life certainly, you're not going to escape it. Yeah. And that's taken out of context. That's not what the Buddha said. but. Right, right. That's... Right. 